G'day, mate. Forty here. So I subscribed to the Claremont review of books, and I was reading the summer issue, 2023 book review by Michael Anton, and the book he was reviewing was by Patrick J. Deneen, and it's titled "Regime Change Toward a Post-Liberal Future." And towards the end of his book review, Michael Anton says, "Core problem with discussing solutions to truly momentous." Problems, at least from the right, is that anything that might work is too fundamental and astounding to gain a fair hearing. What's more, even stating such possibilities is more likely than not to get the speaker cancelled, whereas anything that can be discussed openly is all but certain not to work. So, not just coming up with solutions, but communicating them in a way your audience understands without getting yourself killed calls for the most delicate judgment, a fine literary hand, and a prudence that would impress Aristotle himself. Now, there are some segments of American life where one can still speak、uh, fairly freely. One segment is comedy; another segment is true crime. So, when we start to investigate crime, often the dark, you know, underside of human motivations and what you know drives people. Comes to light in a way that's just not generally acceptable to discuss. So, Mama JF, as she's known to people who follow the live stream at Jean Francois Garapi, went、uh, went missing many many months ago, and there are now a plethora of true crime podcasts trying to figure out what happened. So, this is from the Dusty Smith Show. What can I do to use the energy of the Moroccan migrant for my own interest? Let the Moroccan migrant rape the girl. The girl will tell her friends, "I got raped by a Moroccan migrant." Don't ever go out there without having your men beside you. And suddenly, poof! You have girls that are looking for males, and you have an easier dating scene. As long as girls believe that they can. They can do whatever they want in our society, and they'll get carried for free. As, as girls hitchhiking, they will get given money for anything they may need. They will be given protection by these、uh, center for battered women. They will be、uh, not prosecuted by the police even when they commit crimes. As long as as females have this guarantee in society, as long as there's no dangers out there, they will not love you. So you have to have a dangerous world to for love to take place. The love out of the the, the the emotional drive of it does not happen. For the woman, she needs to be terrified, and ideally, you need to not be the guy who terrifies her, which is where my idea comes from. Let's buy alligators and repopulate our cities with alligators and moats. So every time they go away, they are in danger. And the So that is J.F. Garapé giving us insight into how he feels about women. This is a whole section he did about how if a woman is being raped, you should not step in to help her in any way. You should allow her to be raped. Women should be terrified at all times because that's the only way they won't leave you. If a big strong man's is there to protect him, even though he's a fucking manlet, Alora was way bigger at five ten、uh, than、uh, this little doughy bitch is. So probably she was protecting him more, but just goes to show you he hates women. He has no respect for them whatsoever. Literally thinks we should allow them to be raped and not interfere in any way because he's so fucking pathetic. That's the only way he can think of having a woman stay with him. 
This is as beta as it fucking gets, to be honest with you. Hey guys, how you doing? I'm Dusty Smith, and this is episode four of my deep dive true crime series on JF Gary Epe. And it's just going to be a quick update, not a long video, but I did have a tip that I got. And I have no idea if this tip is real. I do believe it's a real tip. I don't know if this person knows they're talking about. Um, maybe they are just trying to help in any way they can, but they could be wrong. I don't know. We're going to get to it. Uh, before I do, I do want to say I did uh, immediately contact the police and give them this tip. I have not heard back from them. I filled out a web form on their website. Their website actually says, don't contact us if you don't live in Canada. Contact your local police, tell them, and then have them contact us. And I am uh, absolutely not going to do that. It is too dangerous for me to contact my local police, especially with what I do living where I live. I, I just... You know me, I'm not going to fucking call the goddamn cops. So if anybody out there watches this video and knows how to get the cops to take this seriously, please. So one of my themes over the past uh, year is something that I've called uh, vouch nationalism, that many privileges in life, I think, should be contingent upon you getting a series of law-abiding citizens to vouch for you, and that if you misbehave, then those privileges should be revoked. So I'm talking about privileges such as owning a gun, uh, a driver's license, uh, other privileges so that people are incentivized to move out of their individualist cocoon and to form groups and alliances where people take responsibility for one another. I'd like to see churches and synagogues and other groups be allowed to offer health insurance, to have complete freedom of association so that they can set the rules for who gets to join the group. And then by following the rules, you know, what, what benefits might accrue to them? Gary Epe's neighbors sent me a tip about his case uh, three weeks ago, and it ended up in my spam folder. Think I might know where Allure is buried. And then, so this might be a total fucking coincidence, y'all. But you look at Jeff Epe's channel on Odyssey. He was doing shows every single day, seven days ago, eight days ago, six days ago, five days ago, four days ago, three days ago. And then the day I posted this, he took a day off to sterilize his house again. I shit you not. Here he is admitting to it. I did not want to play the whole thing. It didn't start up where I wanted it to. Whatever. He says it right at the beginning, so it doesn't matter. And you will notice, this is going to be important later, every video he has has a revolutionary phenotype advertisement. For his book, that is his uh, seminal work, it's his life's work, it's what's going to put him on the map. We're going to talk more about this in a minute, but this is important to pay attention to. And here he is going to laugh about sterilizing his house again after he uh, took the night off. Hello everyone and welcome to JFG tonight. Yesterday I was on a break. I tweeted, I'll be on a break tonight. House course. With de-stainer and sterilizing bleach. And people have, uh, have been laughing their ass off. Some people were so, so what one definition of being on the right politically is that you regard time-tested ways of organizing people as generally better than newfangled ways that haven't been tested. And uh, getting married, right? One man, one woman getting married and becoming part of a community is a traditional way of organizing life that I think works better than newfangled ways. 
saying funny. he has tasted blood again. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the wife of your children is missing, right? The mother of your children is missing, dude. Hasn't been seen in five months. It's fucking hilarious, right? Last time I cleaned my house with sterilizing bleach, uh, I got accused of being a murderer by Ramsey Paul. Yes, because your story about your wife disappearing sounds like fucking bullshit. You had no evidence to back it up. And you sterilize... Okay, a lot of people are not accusing JF of murder. They're just noticing you know, un unusual patterns and unusual responses to you know one's wife the mother of your children going missing lies your house right after your wife went missing that looks extremely fucking suspicious holy shit i <clears throat> i did it again i guess uh I, I got away with it once more so funny yesterday i again cleaned my house with uh my cleaning material uh I, we have two super cool super cool jf so like i said i don't know if it has anything to do with what i posted i hope not i hope he's not so when I was talking about this topic with friends, they said, oh, you know, missing Mama JF. Uh, I mean, come on, 40, that, that's so October 8th. So October 7th was the big Hamas attack on southern Israel. And uh, ever since then, the missing Mama JF story has largely disappeared from the consciousness of many people I know around the dissident right. I try to clean up shit because of what I posted. I'm hoping uh, that the cops are watching him. As we know, he likes to put his alibis in his videos. So if the cops come by, I'm like, why is there bleach? He could be like, I told you on my video, I had to sterilize my house again. I already talked about this in the video. So he thinks that covers his tracks uh, when he admits to this kind of stuff in public. So brings me to this. The revolutionary phenotype. JF's life's work. I've talked about this before. I play videos about. So people who live stream as much as I do and as much as Jean-Francois Garoupi does, right, we're not putting a premium on our own privacy, right? There are other things that we value more than our own privacy, such as the ability to go public with our ideas, try to influence the public space. And with the privileges that, that come from, you know, doing a live stream and having some effect on people, right? There comes a downside. You then become a recipient of much more scrutiny. And so Jean-Francois has engaged in you know, a lot of rhetoric and you know, laughter and you know, other behaviors and choices that have caused him to receive more than an ordinary amount of scrutiny. And our partners, all right, our spouses, our closest friends, they reflect who, who we are, right? So uh, Mama JF, for all her problems, is a pretty accurate reflection of the psyche of a Papa JF, right? If you don't want to get fired at work, you not only need to abstain from the behaviors and the language that uh, companies do not want their employees engaged in, you have to separate yourself from those people who do engage in practices and rhetoric that uh, a company does not want. And so too in real life. In the real world, people have to cut off other people who are bad for them because who we associate with you know, reflects us. It's a pretty good indication of who we are. Him talking about this before, but basically he says it doesn't matter if he goes to jail. 
It doesn't matter people think he killed his wife because he knows that someday the revolutionary phenotype will be studied science. It will be accepted science. Everybody will know he is a genius that came up with the revolutionary phenotype theory. And regardless of the bad things people say about him murdering his wife, it won't matter because this idea is so revolutionary. Science won't be able to help but to adopt it. All right, this is from the Dusty Smith show, and most of his observations seem to be grounded in common sense. This is what he's uh, based so much of his ego on, so much of his uh, personality. All right, so we all have a hero system, and I base a lot of my ego on the things that I do online, the, the essays that I publish, the shows that I do the relationships that I develop, you know, from my online production. Other people primarily, you know, get their ego needs met at work or through hobbies. All right. We will usually get our ego needs met through that one thing that most distinguishes us. So for some people, it's the company softball league, right? That's where they excel other people more than any other arena. Other people get it from volunteering, from being a sponsor in a 12-step program. Right, we all need to get fed, and how we get our egos fed is a pretty good indication of what we value. So much of his hopes and dreams, as much even perhaps as his uh, projects, which is what he calls his children. Now, uh, supposedly, he had two children with Alora, one, uh, both of them babies, one brand new, probably still suckling, right before she disappeared. So... Here's the crazy part. I think I found yet another motive for this murder. And uh, let me lay it out for you, and we'll see what you guys think. So here's the crazy part. So this is, like I said, his life's work. What he thinks is going to put him on the map. What he thinks is going to make him tons of money and get tons of respect. Well, it turns out that the publisher of his book is Elora Editions, which is a company that is sole proprietorship-owned by Elora Pantone. Yes, his uh, ex-girlfriend, his girlfriend, his uh, supposed wifey, but they're not actually married. So he registered multiple companies under her name, and she literally owns the publishing rights to his life work. Here it is. Sole proprietorship, Elora Editions. Owner, Elora Pantone. So let's just imagine... According to the Dusty Theory, what happened to Alora was she was killed sometime around... All right, it's often a bit shady when you're trying to register companies under names not your own, right? Not everyone who does this, obviously, is engaged in shady activity, but it is a pretty consistent marker of shady activity. ...early June, late May. Jeff has talked about how one night while he was on air, she ran in the room holding something. He can't tell us what it is. But it was so horrible, he immediately turned off the video and accused her of terrorism. It was fucking terrorism what she did. And then she was never seen on video again after that, folks. Uh, my hypothesis is that she tried to bring her child on screen, which is a no-no to JF. JF has already had uh, at least one child. So this hypothesis does make sense. Uh, it also makes sense that someone would not want their children on social media. Uh, you don't have to be you know, creepy or you know, hiding something nefarious to not want to publicize your children on social media, particularly if you're a 
controversial public figure. Now taken away, he has made it very clear how disturbing, how upsetting he finds the thoughts of a woman could just take everything from him, can take his children from him. So what if Mama JF, the doting mama, got sick of having to hide the children? He uh, tried to convince his earlier wife, at least according to him, into having her kids at home. Did not want them registered with the government, I guess. Said he was qualified to uh, deliver children at home because he had given birth. That delivering children at home strikes me as something reckless because there can be so many deadly complications in childbirth. Why would you not want your your spouse at a hospital? To uh, monkeys at the lab that he worked. So my guess is that these kids have not been registered, don't have birth certificates. They were birthed at home. And he is terrified that the government is going to find out about him. So what if she's a doting mama, gets tired of having her kids hidden, wants to be like a regular mom, is proud of her kids, wants to show her kids off, wants to take pictures of her kids, have her kids on social media. And JF was like, hell no, no, absolutely not. That's terrorism. And she says, well, fuck you. I'm tired of this. I want to have a regular life. I'm taking the kids. And, uh, so I've never been able to sustain a relationship longer than one year. But one thing I do notice in relationships, they tend to become quite intense. And both parties become quite adept at pushing the other party's buttons. And so if having his kids you know, publicly revealed is like the world that uh, JF fears, it, it would make sense that his, his spouse would you know, go to to that length if she's particularly upset with him. Uh, also, I literally own your life's work. I own the publishing rights. Now, JF still owns the copyright, but a publishing company owns the print license for a book, which includes digital. So she could print as many copies of this book she wanted to, and because she's the sole proprietor, take all the money. It's in her name. So imagine how enraged you would be by the... Why would he register, right, th this book in his, his wife's name? Uh, how does that make sense? I can't imagine doing that. Thought. And also, it seems very likely that perhaps the house that they live in is registered under her name because he has multiple business registered under her name. I'm going to show you another one right here. He had three as far as I could find. Here's another one under her name. Uh, Revolution D -la D Dev Labs, which seems like it's a take on the revolutionary phenotype. Apparently, this is his uh, science business that's going to be used to study the revolutionary phenotype. I guess do a, a scientific work with it. It is sole proprietorship owned by Alora Patone. So this woman owns J.F. Garapay, probably owns his house. Owns so one, one of my rules for life that I don't perfectly live up to, but I found incredibly helpful to the degree I've been able to implement it into my own life is to just assume everybody knows everything. So I'll admit, I went through much of my life just trying to get away with as much as I could get away with, have my life in as much as possible, you know, concrete segments, all right, isolated away from the rest of my life. But trying to adopt the attitude everybody knows everything has benefited me it has opened me up it has it has freed me along with the idea that anything i, I say and anything i do 
how would that be perceived if it was published accurately on the front page of the New York Times? So constantly trying to get away with stuff is not usually a good recipe for a good life. Owns his life work. Probably threatened to take the kids. And that, in my opinion, probably, this is once again, speculation, speculation, 100% speculation, is why I think uh, she ended up getting killed. I do want to say, before I continue, I have no insider evidence besides what I'm going to show you. JF is innocent to prove he's afraid somebody is going to Google her name. And if you Google her name, you find out where her last address is. Now, I am not going to reveal. I've blocked it out here. I'm not going to dox him. But the thing is, he doxed her. He publicly registered businesses under her name to where anybody who Googles her can find out what her last known address is. So before anybody accuses me of doxing him, no, he doxed her. He didn't give a shit about her. He was busy doing some shady fucking shit, I'm guessing, and would rather have his businesses registered under this uh, woman who seems to be sort of uh, mentally infirmed. So uh, here is a... Just a quick beginning of a video for Alora. Let me turn it up over here. Boom, 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 boom. See what you guys think about our mental state. Hi, everyone. It's me, Mama dear. How are you? <laughs> okay, so today I have decided to make a little video for you. Because uh, I, I want to explain you something very important about the life. And also, I have a little message for Mr. Donald Trump. But first of all, I want you to listen to my story. So you will understand better what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, so, um... Uh... Yes, so let's start the story that happened in my life. This story started when I was... So I remember at my church when I was a teenager, there would be a couple of dozen of uh, non-neurotypical, mentally retarded teenage girls who would go to my church, and a lot of them just adored me. And, you know, a tiny little bit of me thought, oh, you know, it would be so much easier if I dated a mentally retarded girl instead of someone, you know, at my cognitive level. Now, I never, never, ever, ever did anything about that. I immediately dismissed the thought, but I know that I had that thought. So I understand why some guys would prefer to have relations with a mentally retarded girl rather than someone on their level. Mentally fit enough to be running businesses, and there's some shady shit going on with her and him registering these businesses under her name. Now, um, this kind of makes his story about all this seem like even a bigger load of bullshit, in my opinion. Because if she owned... His life, life's work, if she was the sole proprietor of the publishing company that owned his life's work, if she was the sole proprietor of the business that owned the science uh, business that he registered to study the revolutionary phenotype, and possibly also if she owned his house, he declared that he knew that she was planning on leaving for a while, that she had this plan for a long time, and he knew it was coming eventually. Wouldn't he have... Had her transfer the stuff back to him before he let her leave, never to be seen again? 
Why would he let this woman he knows might walk out of his life, never see her again, walk out of his life with the rights to his life's work, to the most important thing to him besides his children? It doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. It it seems like he did know it was going to happen all of a sudden. I I would love to hear him explain this. But uh, also, he hasn't mentioned the lie detector at all. So either he backed out of the lie detector or it didn't go well. You know, if it went well, he will be. Comment in the chat, a little confused at the entitlement verging on rage. There's so many people uh, getting mad. They're not allowed to see other people's children. Well, people are getting mad because this woman has gone missing. And I, I think that's what underlies the frustration here. Not so much that we, we should be entitled to see other people's kids online. God forbid. He- bragging about it oh i aced that they know i didn't fucking do it they know i had nothing to do with this he definitely would be saying that if it was uh a good outcome at all for him in my opinion so but like i said if she said hey i'm gonna get rid of my cell phone and you're never gonna hear from me again the first thing i would think he would say was uh no you own the publishing company to my book, my life's work and possibly my house and my other businesses. You're the mother of my two children. No, we have to work this out before you can just disappear off the face of the planet. I'm going to need you clearly for business purposes. It it just does not pass the sniff test. It seems like a complete fucking bullshit to me. So that brings me to the tip I got folks. So yeah. How how many people just, disappear like this and this is some kind of you know healthy rational adult choice all right when you look at nature sick animals animals on the corner of the hood on the margins of the hood they're the ones that are most likely to get picked off by predators but most people the good life consists of living in the center of the hood not you know completely disconnecting from the hood and trying to go your own way now i was surfing facebook and I was surfing the DMs on Facebook, and I did not realize that page. And then, like, it was a real Facebook page. I mean, it had been there forever with pictures of their family, like pictures of, you know, you can tell a real Facebook page from a fake Facebook page. And the address they lived in was exactly in the same area that JF Garapay lives in, which backs up what they said. Now, they could have, maybe they were wrong about what they said. Uh, maybe they're trolling. But the fact that they live right there by JF Garapay kind of lends credence to what they say might be true. At least they might uh, think what they're saying is true. So I've edited out every part of this except for just the the main part. They said some other things, but they are scared. They're frightened because they think Jeff Garapay uh, killed his wife, and they don't want him coming to their house and murdering them. So they're a little bit um, cautious. Wanted to make sure that I did not in any way uh, release any information about them. And I I would not argue that JF killed his wife. I would just say that this is a fascinating and disturbing case and leave it at that. Which I uh, have no intention on doing. Um, This is loading up very slowly. God damn it. Come on. Load up faster, asshole. All right. There we go. All right. So this is the message that was sent to me on Facebook. Like I said, it's a longer message, but this is the crux of what was sent to me. Check under the big flower box that he decided to build the same time she went missing. Now, 
I assume that this person saw him build this flower box. And it, it, she mentioned that there were other people, not just her, other people that witnessed this. And it seems very strange that he would be just all of a sudden, as soon as his wife goes missing, building a flower box out there, right? Very, very uh, incriminating, in my opinion. Like, once, I, once again, I hope that they have uh, cameras on this place. I hope that they've told uh, the cops about this. And if you guys know anybody who would take this seriously, they haven't responded to me about the cops. I, I, I sent them a message about it. Please get this information to them. And if they want to ask me about it, I will tell them uh, who this person is. Obviously, I will reveal the uh, identity of this person to the cops if they ask me. I will. Yeah. Hey, there we go. It's up now. All right. Now I can show you guys. Finish it. Or him uh, bragging about how hot the women he is getting is. Let me scroll up, see if I can find exactly where it is. Scroll, 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 scroll. Where the fuck is it? Is it earlier? There we go. Here it is. That's the end of this clip. All right, here we go. Sorry, ladies, he's taken. I've been forgetting it for like four shows. And so I want to come back to it. What we infants who are interested in me. Doors okay, here, here we go. I'm like, there's more ch who is out there calling me falsely incel because I'm not an incel. I am in a relationship. My relationship status has been updated. I am currently in a relationship. People were soliciting sperm for, from me yesterday. <laughs> Definitely I had to refuse the opportunity. All, all lines of production of sperm and frozen sperms have been halted. Holy shit, he's creepy. There is, but, but I, and so when people go out there on Twitter and think that calling me an incel is an insult, I'm always laughing my ass off because it's false. And I'm like, there's more chance that the person calling me an incel uh, is incel themselves than I. Yeah, dude, you're an alpha male pussy slayer. That's why you have to root for a society where women are constantly raped, where you want them being constantly dangerous, they fear of their lives, so they won't fucking leave you, just like every other woman you've ever fucking known has done. Just like, where's this woman? Where's this hot-ass woman, dude? Because I have a constantly rolling set of applications. Definitely true. For That's why you were sight unseen, the 39-year-old woman who wanted to move in and be inseminated by you. Didn't you know what you look like from another country? Just, I don't care. I just want to inseminate you immediately. Hurry up, dude. You ain't got that fuck many options. Quit pretending. Achieving the girlfriend status of JF. And in fact, at this point, uh, I get to pick the fucking beautiful woman. <laughs> at this point, it's pretty, <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, uh, pretty insane. I so don't insane. know that I would Almost have sex with women that are so beautiful in my life. Mm -hmm, I have achieved the peak, uh, peak of my life because uh, I thought I had fucked the most beautiful woman I would ever fuck. Mama but no, I was wrong. Uh, it keeps going up. Keeps, keeps going, going up, y'all. Papa JF value keeps going up. Uber value can't get higher value than uh, Papa JF, uh, JF Gary pay. Don't you women want to break you off a piece of that? Too sexy, too sexy right now. So, all right, let's see what you guys have to say in the chat. Okay, looking at the chat, Elliot says the Tenderloin in San Francisco is crawling with fentanyl addicts. Some women with children who have left their former lives behind are slowly killing themselves with this drug. Yeah, but is there any evidence that uh, this applies to Elora Fatuan? don't think so in the cities kind of urban hiking but he started off this his last stream talking about how he's not scared of losing his freedom so let's take a look at that it's very quick and that's the way he begins his show this is R roberta glass true crime hello channel. everyone and welcome to jeff g tonight how are you doing popcorn power says time to celebrate another day of freedom for jfg <laughs> As if I was going to lose my freedom. You have so little, so little trust in me. Uh, Spendly Opinion was saying, I enjoyed your... So, it's not that he didn't kill Alora. It's that we have such little trust in his ability to get away with these kind of crimes. His hardcore supporters. They just don't know that he is 
a career criminal and he will get away with this. But more unbelievable than that, if you go into, he goes on his stream a little bit, a little bit further, he's talking about how happy he will be this winter now that Alora is not there to up the heating bill and he's going to save so much money. Take a listen. Okay. Oh, I'm cold today. I'm very cold. My feet are super cold because the first snow has fell. The whole outside of my property is covered in snow. Isn't it beautiful? I love it. The cold is coming and I'm trying to minimize my use of heating oil because now I have a heat pump. And so I'm trying to heat the whole house just with a heat pump. And that is just, it just warms the air really. So it doesn't warm the floor that much. Whereas the heating oil, it warms the whole house because the furnace is below the floor. So the furnace outputs some heat that heats the floor. But uh, I know that the heat pump will be great savings. And not that I need, <coughs> not that I need money, but I like savings. I like to set myself on a path of, you know, my life costing as little as possible. And I think I have a great opportunity here with Mama JF gone to see how much can I save in uh, heating cost just being a male. My impression is that I can save maybe two thousand dollars for the whole winter. That is just how much I think the woman costs in her desire to keep the whole house warm. I now have new insulation in the ceiling. Uh, the guys didn't have time to finish the insulation in the basement, so that's too bad. But uh, still, I think I can save $2,000 just being a male, just being intelligent about opening windows. You know, it's... Mama JF felt the need to open the window in full winter at minus 40 outside. She would feel the need to open the window to circulate the air in the bathroom after a shower. Yeah, some family members of mine do that no, no matter how cold it is they got to have the windows open that's my that was my dad's attitude so the, the home that i grew up in was was literally cold not just emotionally cold much of the time but physically cold i remember we lived in manchester england i was so cold there i, I would i volunteered about age four on to do the dishes because when i did the dishes i get to soak my my hands and my arms in hot water and that would warm me up uh, and it's like shower, 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 and you, you would lose the whole heat of the house every time she would do this. And it's like, okay, like th that shower just cost us $30. Boom. Uh, I, you know, it's important to manage a home uh, properly and intelligently. And Yeah, clearly that's <clears throat> more important, right, than the missing mother of your children. This is not what we expect. When someone is missing, you know, I wake up every morning thinking, oh, I hope Alora Patwan is found. I've never met the woman. I'm showing more concern than JF has ever shown. It's always like the attitude is always like so dismissive and diminishing towards her. She cost me so much money. This is going to be a great winner. It was four months of happiness, four months of happiness. This is what makes this story so fascinating is we've never seen an attitude like this. Most people like Chris Watts try to fake some kind of sincere. Remember Chris Watts? Nothing was here when I came in. It was very weird. It was like there were objects and then he caught himself and said, oh no, they weren't there. And I just wish that they would jump into my arms again. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that was the gist of what he was saying. And here we have, this is like great. I'm not worried. The only problem is this annoying investigation, knocking on my door, waking me up in the morning. I'm going to have to take this lie detector test. 
But this, I mean, it goes on, is is madness. A uh, woman clearly don't know how to do this. Uh, Silver Spider says that's what a bedroom fan is for. Well, we have a bedroom fan, but somehow it wasn't. Wow, that's the first time I've heard him say we. Who's we? Allura's missing. Who's we? Is that you and your children? You and your child? Who is this we? We have a, bath a bathroom fan. Enough. Somehow she wanted to replace the whole hair, and the problem of the bathroom fan is that it doesn't pump the whole air out. So, so now you got a super cold bathroom because someone took a shower, and now we have to circulate the air of the bathroom so that it's dry, and so we opened the bathroom door, so now the whole house is, is losing its heat. It, it was unbelievable, just... Uh, the loss, the, the, the damage, the, I, I realized the damage that woman caused to the planet, really. Uh, so now she's not just a, a bad... Talk to Colin Liddell. Colin, how are you? Hey, Luke, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. Good to, good to talk to you, man. So is there anything about this Jean-Francois Garapi story and his you know, missing wife that uh, catches your attention? Uh, you're, you're kind of roboting. So, um, I've probably got too many windows open at the moment. So let's just try closing a few. Yeah. I was just anything about the JF Garapi story that catches your attention. Uh, well, it is a kind of funny story. Um, I think that, uh, JF strikes me as something of a fantasist. Um, but then we have a, a case like the present case where somebody has actually gone missing. So has he crossed the line into, uh, you know, turning his fantasy into a kind of sick reality? Yeah. So when, when you live, you know, far outside the, the, the mainstream, the more marginalized you are, then the more suspicious people are going to be of you. And so this is you know, part of the part of the prize from the deliberately flouting social mores that uh, it just becomes increasingly disturbing to people. But uh, let's let's talk about Japan briefly. Uh, Shinzo Abe was assassinated a few months ago, and th there are a lot of revelations about the Unification Church that came out as a result. He was assassinated because of his ties with the Unification Church. Uh, any. Anything about that story that uh, captured your attention? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the thing that I noticed was that uh, some people uh, are actually quite religious. And when you don't actually have um, an established form of religion, then it sort of veers off into kind of weird cult-like groups. So Japan is actually uh, quite a fertile place for um, cults to, to rise up. And it, it seems like the assassin really accomplished many of his plans because he brought attention to how the you know, Unification Church has influenced Japanese politics. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, basically, he just wanted to hit the Moonies. And um, because of, I think, because of um, COVID restrictions and other factors, uh, his original intention was displaced uh, into into actually shooting uh, ex Prime Minister Abe. Um, 
and then that kind of opened a can of worms. And then, you know, the, um, the, the, the sort of Liberal Democratic Party that uh, Abe belongs to, they're in a kind of uh, alliance with Komeito, which is a kind of uh, Buddhist group. And so you do have um, people asking questions about these, um, these various groups. Um, and they do have a lot of wealth and power. So during one of my recent walks in uh, Tokyo, I, I sort of chanced upon this area where almost every building was uh, owned by and fly in the flag of uh, Sokagakai, which is another, you know, kind of semi-cult-like group. And uh, what's going on in Japanese politics these days? Is there any topic that uh, the Japanese are particularly convulsed by? Um, well, there's the, the G7 thing recently. So, you know, Japan's trying to stay at the top table. Um, but also they're trying to um, kind of keep things smooth with the Chinese. And, uh, you know, they're also trying to kind of like de-risk their economy a lot. And the, the way in which they de-risk their economy seems to be to keep the, uh, the, the, the value of the yen uh, severely depressed. And so the, uh, the yen is too low, according to a lot of people. And I think the, the reason they do that is because they want to kind of um, like reshore a lot of their um, production that they had formerly outsourced to China. And do they seem to be going about the, these moves in an efficient way? Well, yeah, I think it's quite efficient because Japan is becoming a multicultural, well, Tokyo is becoming very much a multicultural society quite rapidly, I think, now. Um, so part of the, this uh, de-risk and reshoring kind of um, program is to um, bring in a lot of migrant labor. Uh, whatever happened to that cult that set off, I think, saran gas in Tokyo subway? Uh, Om Shinrikyo um, changed their name, I think, to Aleph, something like that. And so I think they're still around. Um, so some people are, are still members. But uh, obviously, with uh, that amount of bad publicity, they're not doing nearly as well as Sokagakai or the Moonies. And then the um, the happy science cult suffered a severe blow because their uh, their guru like leader he he died and he was just about uh, I think he was in his late fifties. What are the chances that Japan would rule a cult like the Moonies to be illegal and and cannot uh, cannot uh, carry on in Japan? And uh, we seem to have lost. Oh, Colin, did you hear me? What What are the chances that uh, the Moonies might be ruled illegal in Japan? There might be some kind of crackdown. I think uh, they would base that upon um, what other countries do. So, if the Moonies were were banned in, say, America, then they would think uh, that's a good precedent to follow. Let's do the same thing here. But uh, you know, if the Moonies are operating in America, but uh, you know, people are calling for a ban in Japan, that'd be a little bit harder to do unless they had a specific reason to do so. Uh, do the Moonies have much of a media influence 
presence in Japan? Well, I'm not really sure. I think a lot of um, shadowy groups and um, vested interests have uh, quite a strong influence on the Japanese economy, Japanese politics, and Japanese society. Um, but it's all kind of relatively well managed. So, you know, they try to avoid causing a problem because, you know, Japan is a what's known as a non-confrontational society. They don't really uh, deal with confrontation in the same way that we do. I mean, we're, we're used, Western societies are uh, used to dealing with uh, quite, uh, you know, um, severe confrontation. And uh, we've found ways to kind of, um, like, um, mollify it and or to um, offset it in various ways. Um, like, you know, we, we tend to forgive people for past um, offences and we use a lot of humour and so on. But uh, I think there is a big, uh, big move on at the moment in Western societies to polarise them. And I've noticed this uh, with, uh, you know, recently with, with re uh, regard to the United Kingdom. Um, that, uh, somebody is trying very, very hard to get British people all shouting and screaming at each other. Um, and I think um, the coming weekend, there should be uh, some interest in um, developments. Right. Isn't, isn't there the equivalent of, what, what is it, Veterans Day, the equivalent in England that's also going to be marked by massive Palestinian protests? Yeah, in the in the uh, capital city of London, there's there's the usual remembrance uh, Sunday um, thing that they have at the cenotaph, where all the old soldiers kind of dust off their medals, and all the um, political leaders come and lay a wreath and so on. And uh, you get these these uh, military bands playing somber music. And uh, on the same day, there's going to be a um, big march. I'm not sure how big it's going to be yet, but it should be quite massive. From uh, Hyde Park through London, uh, I think it even goes past the uh, the Buckingham Palace, uh, all the way to the American Embassy, which has, um, you know, a few years ago it was relocated from Grosvenor Square to a site next to the River Thames. So. Uh, a lot of trouble is being expected, and this has been this has been worked up constantly by uh, certain elements, uh, relatively new elements of the UK media. Yeah, the 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 alt light elements of UK media focused on this. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, yeah. You've probably heard some of your um, Listeners have probably heard of GB News and groups like that, or um, another organization called ARC. Uh, what's that again? Um, the something about respond. I can't remember the. Uh, it, it's a great topic for talk radio. I mean, Times Radio from the Times of London has also covered it extensively. Yeah, they. But you've heard of this um, this group called ARC? I'm not sure. Um, well, it's actually run by the same people that run uh, GB News. Uh -huh. um, let's, let me just uh, dig it up. Hang on. Yeah, so it's it, one of my favorite websites is the Times Times Radio website put out by the uh, on YouTube channel. I mean.
was put out by the Times of London and contains many thoughtful interviews, particularly about uh, current events such as the Israel-Hamas war, the Ukraine conflict, and then what's going on in England vis-a-vis -vis Remembrance Day and Palestinian protests. Okay, did you find what you're looking for, Colin? Yes, yes. It's, the, it's, it's late here, so I'm starting to be groggy. Uh, the Alliance for Responsible... Um, oh, yeah, it's a conservative... It's kind of a responsible form of conservatism, right? Yeah, yeah responsible citizenship. The Alliance, I mean, it's, it's actually hard to remember these terms when you... They just uh, had a conference. Yeah. Yeah, they had a, a massive... Well, I don't know if it's massive, but it seemed quite a big conference for such a group to hold. Uh, they seem very well organized, very well funded. They've also got a new uh, YouTube channel. And so they're, you know, they're connected to all these people like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and all these uh, GB News people. And so they're sort of targeting the interstice between the distant right and the mainstream right. And uh, they're trying to kind of activate some of that dark energy. And I, I'm, you know, still not clear what, exactly what's going on, but there's quite a few red flags uh, from my point of view. Yeah, Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Uh, Helen Lewis has an essay about the latest conference in the Atlantic magazine. So, yes, do you know who's uh, behind them? No. Do you know where the money comes from? Uh, no. Well, oh, hedge, hedge fund oh, yeah. uh, manager Sir Paul Marshall. And also somebody else. So there's two guys uh, behind this, Christopher Chadwick and uh, Paul Marshall. They're, they're both, uh, you know, billionaires. Uh, Paul Marshall, he's, a, he's, a, he's got a big hedge fund, heavily invested in uh, fossil fuels. And so GB News and also ARC, they constantly push this kind of uh, anti-environmentalism. And then... Uh, Christopher Chadwick, uh, he's um, he used to be connected to Gazprom. He used to uh, have a lot of business in Russia, and uh, he has this uh, big um, investment fund based in Dubai, and uh, so that's where all the money for GB News is coming from. That's uh, where ARC are also coming from. Because so, uh, go ahead, go ahead. A lot of, uh, there's a lot of dark money uh, flowing into the UK to uh, influence its politics. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of Russian billionaires buying sports teams in, in the UK. And and then we heard about sports washing out of the Middle East by Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And now we've got, uh, got foreign money flowing into UK think tanks. But we also have a lot of foreign money, I would assume, flowing into the pockets of American influencers, people like uh, Stephen Crowder and Ben Shapiro, I'd expect. But yeah, I'm sure that's part of the picture. But, you know, um, I tend to focus on the uh, kind of UK situation because I'm able to, uh, you know, using my background, my greater background knowledge of the United Kingdom, I'm able to kind of um, extrapolate a bit, a bit more effectively uh, than I would be with uh, American society and American politics because American politics always strikes me as a bit nutty and crazy uh, anyway. So, but uh, with the UK, you know, they're, um, they seem to be trying really hard to um, do a lot of uh, influencing on the uh, Conservative Party and they, they do seem to have their toe lodged quite firmly 
into uh, certain crevices in the uh, in the Conservative Party. But uh, all that, all their efforts might well be wasted uh, next year when we have our uh, you know British general election because uh, it looks like a pretty safe bet that uh, the Tories will be booted out. Now, uh, under certain circumstances, I would assume that the Tories would have a better better chance of hanging on to power. So uh, anything I would expect to do with national security, if that becomes more of an issue as opposed to government welfare spending, I would expect that the Tories would be better positioned to win. Is that fair? Um, well... Yeah, you know, you can you can look at it issue by issue, but it's it, I don't think that's a problem. I think the problem is the um, Conservative Party has uh, overbrowned itself, and uh, you know they're really in a in a bit of a bind now because you know I mean Rishi, he's quite a good pick as uh, you know Prime Minister. He's intelligent enough. Uh, he seems to be making the right moves. He comes over as quite sincere well-intentioned person, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the thing is, they've also got other brown faces, and the biggest problem for them is, is uh, Suella Braverman, because she's Home Secretary, and being Home Secretary means you get on the end of all these uh, news stories. And so she's constantly um, appearing in the media, in the news, on social media, and so the Tory party's just started to look like a brown party to a lot of people who aren't really paying too much attention. You know what I mean? So you have uh, white ministers, you have the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, who's, who's a white person. And, you know, he's just quietly, in a very low-key way, going about his job. He doesn't make, uh, make many ripples. He doesn't cause many headlines to appear. And then you've got Suella Braverman. She's trying to do some of the right things. She's trying to stop the um, kind of uh, these uh, illegal migrant boats that uh, cross the, the channel and so on. You know, she's, so she's, in some ways she's trying to do the right thing, but she's just uh, you know creating a lot of controversy and uh, appearing in the news too much. And then you've got uh, her, and you've got the the leading guy Rishi Sunak, and they're both Indians. And you know, I think. Um, British people are just starting to, to feel a little bit um, kind of, you know, browned off, you know, to, to use a pun there. Uh, the mayor of London, he's a Punjabi. The first minister of Scotland's a, a Punjabi. So I just think that's starting to percolate through the uh, voting demographics. And if you look at what's happened with the Conservative Party, you know, they've got actually quite a good leadership at the moment and they're starting to hit a lot of these populist issues quite well so they should be doing better than uh, trailing the Labour Party by 20 points but uh, you know as we found out with a couple of recent by-elections uh, Labour are not really increasing their uh, votes they're not really becoming a popular party what's happened is that uh, a lot of Conservative voters have just lost interest and they're just staying at home I think one of the reasons for that is because the party just looks too brown to them now. Uh, you surprised by the Joe Biden administration's embrace of Israel? Is there anything in the America-Israel relationship that's been activated since October 7 that's caught your attention? Well, I don't, I don't really think... Um, well, I think, um, you know, up 
on the surface, um, because of what's happened, because of the nature of what's happened, um, because of uh, you know the, the status quo, and then on top of the status quo, you have this uh, quite shocking and uh, in some ways mysterious attack by Hamas and uh, all the fallout from that and then the information war that's gone on which has managed to spin this uh, in various ways to various audiences um the the biden administration they have to kind of um you know um pay lip service to the to america's relationship with israel but behind the scenes from what i can tell they're trying to kind of tug quite firmly on uh, bb's sleeve and uh, you know to prevent him doing some of the things that uh, he probably uh, wants to do or people in his coalition want to do so i think it's um you know it's it's, it's i think it's too simplistic to just say that uh, you know biden is in bed with bb i don't think that's at all true hmm. a, a much wider more christian america is probably more pro-israel than the increasingly diverse and uh, less christian america so jews have usually sided with the coalition of the fringe but for for many center and center left and left wing jews the lack of enthusiasm for Israel after October 7 has come as a very nasty shock. A any thoughts on these developments? Yeah, I think it's mainly uh, due to the weird American political system, you know, because uh, I think uh, in America, senators have quite a heavy input into foreign policy, don't they? And if you look at... Um, how America's uh, set up, you have all these kind of rural Christian states, which, uh, you know, where people are um, very much into the Bible and uh, who have this kind of veneration for Israel. You have these, these tiny, uh, these states with tiny populations each get to elect two senators. Uh, so that means that there's quite a lot of senators from the, uh, who are uh, beholden to the Christian evangelicals. And, um, you know, I think that's much more of a problem. That's that's what's sort of distorting uh, U.S. foreign policy. And I think the Democratic Party is trying to um, push in the other direction, but then they have to be quite wary because, of course, the Democrats get a lot of their uh, funding from these uh, the, uh, old Jewish billionaires. And so, you know, you've got to just like um, frame it just right. And uh, so is it? I think uh, the Democrats are in a bit of a bind, but they're just trying to kind of balance these um, these different uh, constituencies. But uh, America's relationship with Israel, I think it used to have some sort of strategic merit during the Cold War, uh, but I don't think it has anymore. I think um, that it's you know the, the time for the special relationship is has ended. America should be thinking much more about um, the, the Muslim world and the Arab world and, and having a good relationship with those countries and um, working in a much more positive way with those countries because otherwise other powers like Russia, like China, will kind of um, come in there and uh, preempt them and uh, take over and uh, influence those countries much more. And, uh, you know, Israel is, you know, at the end of the day, it's quite a small, unimportant country. On the uh, in geopolitical terms. Okay, do you have time for one more question? 
Not really, no. I better be going. Okay, Luke, thanks. So. Thanks, Thank Colin. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Yep. Good night. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Wife, quote unquote. He's referred to her as his wife. They're not legally married. But she's also a bad citizen of the earth because she's so wasteful. I mean, everything out of his mouth is, I hate her. I want you to know I hated her. Life is so much better. I did everyone a favor by getting rid of her. She was damaging to the planet, damaging to the pillars of the house, trying to destroy the family. Now, he's not said that directly, but when he's talking about destruction of the family and his requirements for insemination, it's that women not be, so he has negative requirements, right? Requirements in the negative, that they not be destructive to his family. So I think she said, I'm taking the kids and I'm going. And he was like, no, no, uh, no, no, you're not. I have the ultimate power. I am the male and I'm not going to let you do that. I think it was the sign of his ultimate power. He was defeated in court twice, tricked, according to his thinking, out of the bounty of his child, because I don't think he ever thought of his child as a person. I, I don't think he has those abilities to relate to other people in that way. So being a cold stone psychopath. But this is madness. Madness. I think that's all of it. Uh, we have to address the woman question. We have to gather with the leftist environmentalist and make a summit of women's rights. And no more will you have the right to dump your carbon uh, into my breeding airways, you know? So that's his idea of women's rights, is to say that we're no longer allowed to have a hot shower or too hot or too long or open the door and cause heating losses. That's the most important thing. That's his idea of putting in a women's rights statute. It's really a male's rights statute is what he's saying. It's that men can no longer be victims to women's wasteful ways. That's the woman question. How do we curb their total destructiveness? Very much, very much kind of like. The woman who is uh, speaking right now, her name is Roberta Glass. She has a social media presence under Roberta Glass True Crime Report. Jeffrey Epstein, Keith Ranieri, I mean, I've seen so many of these men, and they're... She's probably done more stories on Jean-Francois Garopi and the missing spouse than anyone. All alike. There are no original psychopaths. It's like they're stamped out of this megalomaniacs. They're all megalomaniacs. Cold, cruel men. And when they are pressed, they're like, what? What? Of course, I'm going to save $2,000. They're so far out of it just unreal to me unbelievable but this is what i should expect with jt your comments let's get into them just a few really great comments from last episode jvet says okay so this was the episode where we started with jf saying he was willing to do two years in prison if he was falsely convicted for his bad jokes and it would be no sweat off his back he'd happily do it that was the attitude and Jbet says, 845, regarding he's willing to do two years and the rest of his totally not a psycho cope. And here, he, here again, JF fails at pretending to be a human. That is not a response from someone who, quote, did no wrong, unquote. How I hope if the Canadian police don't drop the ball on this and this goes to trial, his flippant response regarding the Canadian justice system will be played in court considering during, and considered during sentencing. Or she writes, will be played and considered during sentencing. So play during in court and considered during sentencing. Way to shoot yourself in the foot. Super big brains, JF. I'd say, please, please, please. 
keep talking, but I know your narcissism hubris will prevent you from shutting up. He did take quite a few days off, saying he was exhausted from insemination. But this, I mean, how can he even stream during a time like this? I would think that if my cats were missing, or cat was missing, I would have a hard time. And that's a cat. It's not a human being. I have a hard time concentrating, wondering where, where the cat is. Alex C4159 says, sounds like the heat is turning up and now his t he's telling himself, quote, it's no big deal. I'll just do two years as a cope. If he thought optimistically he was facing two years for nothing, there is no way he would be that calm about it. If you were to told you owe someone two grand in damages for something you didn't do, you'd be pissed. On the other hand, if you were texting while speeding and crashed through someone's living room, finding out the cost of damages is only two grand would be a relief. What would you have to be guilty of to look at two years of your life pissed down the drain as you basically getting as you basically getting a slap on the wrist? Not nothing. Very, very insightful and exactly on the nose. Susan Swan, 6278 says, I'm thinking he could have arranged for someone to pick her up quite easily as she hitches rides. He could have hired that person to take her phone and send these messages. I don't think he is so keen to be a stay-at-home parent so much as he wants to punish the mother by depriving her of contact with her children. Just my thoughts anyway. Well, that's an interesting part of this. And if you caught last stream, we talked about the Missing Persons Act. So this was an act that was just went into effect in September. Now, the alarm was raised for Alora in late September, early October. So had he called this in, had anyone called this in earlier, I don't know if they could have gotten all this stuff, if it would have been covered under the Missing Persons Act. But what it allows police to do is to basically get anything that you need an, a warrant for in America for immediately. And this is because was really hustled into effect because of a, another missing persons case. But let's look at some of the stuff that they can gather under this. So they ask for it first. So they ask for all this stuff first. And if it's not handed over, they go to a court and they get approval to access your phone records, your cell phone records, inbound and outbound texting messages, internet browsing history records, global. So this is from whoever you get your, right? This is, this is from your services who provide your internet, your emails, et cetera, et cetera. Internet browsing history records, global positioning tr system tracking records, video records, include, including closed circuit television footage, records containing employment information, records containing personal health information, records from a school, university, or other educational institutions containing attendance information, records containing travel and accommodation information, and of course, financial information. But JF was totally shocked when they got hold of his financial information. He didn't know they could do that. And the reason he didn't know, if I had to guess, is because this act took effect last month, September. Before this, they couldn't have gotten any of that stuff without this being seen as a criminal investigation. And why, and JF was totally shocked. And why I don't think that they are buying this stuff, the... Okay, I'll get back to the missing case of Laura Pasquan, a.k.a. Uh, 
Mama JF. Let's get a short burst here from the short pod, Colin Liddell on uh, Vichy Sunak. This is the short pod, a brief and succinct podcast commenting on the events and issues of the day. And today it is the 10th of November, 2023. Next year, 2024, is going to be a major electoral year. This includes elections in America, elections in Europe, uh, elections in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. The elections I'm most interested in are, of course, the US election and the UK election. In the UK, the governing Conservative Party is trailing the opposition Labour Party by something like 20 points. And they are struggling desperately to become more popular. In fact, you could say that uh, they're veering into populism. But by doing so, I fear that they have uh, run into a kind of paradox, as uh, most of their populist rhetoric is being produced by the uh, Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. She's at the forefront of the populist fight against illegal migration, for example. She's also been making statements about homeless people, welfare cheats, and other red meat um, subject matter that appeals to conservative voters. This is because the Conservative Party is so far behind Labour, not because Labour is so popular, but because Conservative voters are just not turning up to vote. But there is a problem, as I said, with uh, the Conservative Party's uh, swerve towards populism. And that problem is that, uh, A, it's controversial, and B, it's brown. Now, the Conservative Party is in the awkward position of having over-browned itself when they put uh, Rishi Sunak in as Prime Minister. In Britain, which is a very unracist country, nobody really minds a bit of brown. But I think uh, there is a noticeable cultural trend to um, kind of turn down the brown, so to speak. Um, I think you can see this partly reflected in the Christmas ads for this year, which are a lot less brown-centric than they have been in the past. Now, it's very important for major British political parties to have a bit of brown, to show that they are inclusive, to show that uh, black people, Asian people, etc., are um, part of their target demographic. But the downside of uh, Brown in the party is that uh, you kind of also alienate a lot of white voters. And this is something that the Conservative Party is apparently suffering from. Because, in my opinion, you know, Rishi Sunak has not really been doing that much wrong for a mainstream politician. By definition, of course, all mainstream politicians are flawed. But among mainstream politicians, Rishi's been doing a relatively good job. Uh, Suella Braverman has Home Secretary is uh, saying the right things about a lot of issues as well. But the problem is that when people think of the Conservative Party, the image that comes into their head is a brown party. So a lot of uh, white Conservative voters are not particularly inspired by that. Now, the brownness of the Conservative Party is constantly emphasised, not just by the fact that Rishi, the Prime Minister, the most prominent figure in the government, is brown, but that uh, the most prominent and noisy minister is also brown. Every five minutes... On social media, on the news agenda, we have uh, Suella Braverman's name popping up again and again. And so the Conservative Party is kind of trapped into a kind of brown pocket. And this is, in my opinion, what's kind of really not alienating its voters, but it's just undermining their enthusiasm. There are, of course, a lot of uh, white ministers in the Conservative Party, but unfortunately, very few of them are getting headlines. They're not courting controversy. They're not dealing with um, incendiary issues like uh, Suella Braverman is. So I think there's probably some kind of realisation that Suella Braverman is the wrong person to be Home Secretary because going into the election, she's going to be at the forefront of a lot of these controversial issues 
And the unwitting effect of that is going to be to brown up the Conservative Party. And if you're brown at the election, then I think you're going to go down. Now, Labour, by contrast, Labour has a lot of brown people in it. It appeals to brown people. But they also realise that uh, if you turn up the brown, it's going to have a negative effect. So they've done the opposite to the Conservative Party, even though they're actually, in many senses, a browner party than the Tories. They've kind of turned down the brownness. And so when you see Labour or stories about Labour, it's usually a white face that you see, which is uh, quite the opposite to the Conservatives. So these kind of basic valiance issues tend to be what um, decide elections. And right now, I have to conclude that Labour are fighting a much cleverer election campaign than the Conservative Party. Now, the only thing that uh, Rishi can do is to um, get rid of Suella Braverman as fast as possible. But then that's also going to be a problem because when you have a white Home Secretary involved in these uh, hot button topics, you're going to inevitably have accusations of uh, white racism. So I think the Tories have kind of um, painted themselves into a rather brown corner over and out. Whoops. Okay, that's uh, Colin Liddell. Let's get back to the missing Mama JF. Police are buying JF's story, excuse me, is just because of a little piece in Canadian paper about how this how this missing person was found was found unfortunately dead how that was solved so her name was summer kneebone and she disappeared from the same area and she was a native person so it brought up the issue that maybe the police could have done more and could have worked harder had she been a white woman that was all you know mixed in with the discussion around summer kneebone's unfortunate murder and there's just a little quote from the judicial justice of the peace and he says in this his name is barbar this is okay. He says part of the process is for the judicial justice of the peace to determine that the person is truly missing. Quote that this isn't someone who by choice decided to leave. Unquote. Barbara said. So if they had bought his story, they would be like, okay, we're you know, okay. She she if there was evidence that she chose to leave on her own, the police would not be looking into this this way. They would not be at the stage of financial records and lie detector tests. And of course, JF is monetizing anything surrounding this investigation and putting it on Patreon. And he says that he thinks that that will get the cat lady true crime people in. I assume he means me, but no, <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to give you a dime, JF. I mean, you'll be sadly disappointed. When we get back, we're going to talk about other ways, other things that they could possibly charge JF with. When we return, stay tuned. I'll meet you on the other side of the break. If you are enjoying this episode of My True Crime Report, please hit the thumbs up, subscribe to the channel, and with something else. Like, well, you said you left her at a gas station. I don't think that ever happened. And the only one who knew that he got that text message and was, was JF on the 19th. And strangely, that's the time that she spotted. Isn't that interesting? The only person that knows that that date is important is JF, the 19th. And she's spotted in an outfit that JF totally doesn't remember, but it jogged his memory, and now he remembers this ugly homeless person's coat. But I hope you're, what I hope you're getting from this whole series is that this personality, there's really only one way to go when you're in a coercive, controlled relationship, and now it doesn't always amp up to or end this way, but it will progressively get more violent. And then the final, the final thing is 
murder. That's at the most extreme of a DV situation. So when I was trained, when I worked for Oprah by Gavin DeBecker, what we were looking at were flags, red flags, destroying items, isolating people from friends and family, a pattern of behavior, stalking. So when we look at the OJ Simpson case, that is a textbook example of how a DV situation escalates. Right, she just mentioned Gavin DeBecker. He wrote a very important book called The Gift of Fear. Leads into murder. So what Gavin DeBecker did was he created a system of red flags, check boxes, that when a certain amount of boxes are checked, he's torn up my items, he's started stalking me, that you're already in the red and that they can protect you at that part, at that point. Meaning you've moved into a high, high, high danger situation, meaning that as these boxes get che checked off, you are more likely that it's going to get violent, if not deadly. So I wanted to, with that in mind, I wanted to look at his court papers and some of the uh, psychological evaluations. Now, this was reproduced very poorly. So thank you to the person that put this in a Google Docs. I really appreciate it so that we can all look at it together. So this is when JF was in a custody fight between his third ex-wife. She got divorced from JF when she was pregnant and had to give birth in a hospital that he didn't know about with armed guards under an assumed name. And JF was awarded not even supervised visitations. He was to have no contact with the child. And that is so rare for the U.S. court. So this was in the U.S. when JF was at Duke. So this is this was all litigated in North Carolina. So it starts out, defendant has appeared on multiple online shows wherein he has stated the following during the pendency of this action. A, family courts are a source of oppression. So he knew that this, this was going on. He knew that it would benefit him to keep his mouth closed, and yet he didn't. And of course, it ends up in the court documents. B, nothing drives me crazy because I drive people crazy in the end. Because the maximum frustration you can get from me in a relation is that I will be silent and I do not engage in this conversation. That's the maximum violence. C, we all have a brain, we all have thoughts, but have you ever gotten to a place where your mind, ugh, I would want to kill her? D, I don't believe in psychological explanations of behavior. I don't really care about what motivates them because I don't really think people have access to what really motivates their behavior. In said videos, defendant refers to the American court system and calls the system corrupt and judges evil. Further, defendant references those, quote, evil bees, my words, not theirs, unquote, in one of the videos, and according to his own testimony, he was referring to those he believed has wronged him, including plaintiff, excuse me, Dr. Hannes Britt's office, Dr. Calloway's plaintiff's office, and members of plaintiff's counsel's firm. Defendant did not ask plaintiff of her witness, of her, of her witness, did not ask plaintiff to witness a single, defendant did not ask plaintiff or her witness a single question about the minor child the day of the hearing. So that supports the idea that he doesn't really care about the kids as human beings. Even as vehicles uh, or sources of narcissistic supply, they're only, they're, where they're really useful is in power, is their ability for him to control the woman and for him to have control over women and to immobilize them and legally have jurisdiction over them in their body. Okay. Uh, 
defendant believes he can offer the minor child something others cannot based upon his claims of extensive interactions and experiences raising humans and animals. Defendant does not have any other children, although he has worked with monkeys, including helping in their birth. And this comes up later. So he successfully enrolled the minor child in the United States Department of State Child Abduction Prevention Program. So if that's not the ultimate uh, DARVO tactic, deny, attack, reverse, victim, offender, <laughs> right? <laughs> he was saying, he was calling this woman the abductor. In the meantime, she had to enroll, right, the minor child in this in this program. The Child Passport Assurance Alert Program bans the minor child from being issued a United States passport. In addition, the Canadian Border Patrol has been alerted to the concerns of the court and marital history with Ms. M, including her report. Ms. N was interviewed and provided additional information to that provided above by Dr. Garapay. She reported they met and started dating in October 2014. And by December, Dr. Garapay moved his things into her apartment. That's also a red flag of a relationship that will be coercively controlled if things you get love bombed and things start moving very quickly. In December, they announced their intention to marry. They married in early January 2015. Ms. N reports that when they applied for their marriage license, she discovered he was married twice previously and not the one time he told her. Over the next several months, from January through April, there were several yeast infections and herpes contracted. She reports that Dr. Garapay was unconcerned for these health problems and inattentive with regard to pursuit of medical treatment. So he's like, once he has his insemination vehicle, he doesn't really care about <laughs> their upkeep. I mean, that's the way he would see it. Towards the end of April, Ms. N discovered she was pregnant and was alarmed when Dr. Garapay told her he could deliver the baby at home due to his work experience with monkeys. While the couple had a number of fights and misunderstandings, she... Okay, this idea that you can safely deliver a baby at home because of your work experience with monkeys seems to me to be delusional. It seems to be part and parcel of a very common live streamer delusion that uh, because you're able to attract some viewers that you have you know, far more knowledge and expertise and wisdom and good judgment than you really possess. I mean, ha having children at home strikes me, generally speaking, as reckless considering all the possible complications compared to having children in a hospital. He grew increasingly alarmed when he extensively researched FHTP. So that's that supplement that increases serotonin that she was taking online and wrote her a concerning letter about it. Further, she reported he had one night where he reported paranoid delusions about her, quote, trying to get him. She reported she took the 5-HTP as an over-the-counter medication or supplement for her moodiness, quote-unquote. Asked her physician about the risk of the fetus and was reassured by her physician not to be concerned. She described Dr. Garapé's behavior following this time as badgering and pressuring her to discontinue the use of 5-HTP as threatening to take the unborn baby to, and, and as threatening to take the unborn baby to Canada and threatening to leave her, all of which appeared to stem from her reluctance to discontinue the use of 5-HTP. Yes, uh, Jean-Francois Garapé has been questioned by police with regard to his wife's disappearance. Ultimately, she did, dis did discontinue the use of the supplement. So he badgered her until it was such a point of contention between her that he got his way. On June 11th, she moved out of the apartment they shared when she says he would not, he stopped pressuring her and fighting with her during conversations about reconciliation. Ms. N reported Dr. Garapi said that it was his responsibility to protect the baby from her. See? So it's always a reversal of what's really going on. So broad philosophical overview that uh, there are vast swaths of life 
where we're not really able to speak the truth is in a socially acceptable way, but there are some places where people get to speak the truth in areas of comedy and in areas of true crime. So I was stimulated for this by Michael Anton's book review essay in the Claremont Review of Books, where he says the core problem with discussing solutions to truly momentous problems is that anything that might work is too fundamental and astounding to gain a fair hearing. Even stating such possibilities from a right-wing perspective is more likely than not to get the speaker cancelled, whereas anything that can be openly discussed is all but certain not to work. I mean, so what are some things that might work to improve life in America, in Great Britain, in Australia, in the first world, that are unsayable publicly? I think, number one, we have to recognize the frequently harsh nature of reality. I'm much more of a Hobbesian who sees the state of nature as, as brutal than a Lockean, right? a descendant of John Locke who saw the state of nature as primarily incentivizing cooperation. So recognizing the flawed and selfish nature of people, and therefore we need ways of disciplining people and incentivizing them for good behavior and punishing them for bad behavior. We should recognize the tribal nature of people, should recognize that almost nobody cares about outgroups, recognize that the more people have in common, the more likely they are to feel at ease with each other and to cooperate, recognize that uh, any kind of group system will generally be more productive for individuals than an individualist system. Uh, recognize the power of hero systems. Everybody has a hero system. Most people get it from their community. Leftism and liberalism are the hero systems that think they have transcended hero systems. Most people seem unaware that their hero system is a product of contingent circumstances, and this subjective hero system drives, on the one hand, liberals to condemn imaginary sins such as racism, bigotry, xenophobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, and the like, while people on the right, from a liberal perspective, condemn imaginary sins such as gay sex, uh, trans identity, and drug and sexual experimentation. We do live in a postmodern world. There's no one narrative that adequately explains reality. Still, there are narratives that are more helpful for group cohesion than others. We're all locked in an iron cage together. Nobody's coming to save us to survive. You want to become as strong as possible because you never know what might happen. So the most important task for a nation state is to survive. You should recognize that different people have different gifts. Different plants and animals have different gifts. Different dog breeds have different gifts. When dogs kill people, these dogs are usually Rottweilers and pit bulls. When people kill people outside of war, these killers are usually from a group easy to identify. They're usually young, dumb men with gloomy prospects. Uh, the more stable and cohesive your society, the better. The more divided and unstable your competitors, usually the better it is for you. So we need government and social policy that incentivizes social cohesion and social trust. So that means we need policies and customs that reward hard work and punish slacking. We need policies and procedures and customs that uh, reward achievement and hurt those who act in an antisocial manner. Right? If you're going to help the homeless and the poor, much of this should be conditioned on regular drug and alcohol testing so that we incentivize people who are already living on the margins of life to avoid such dangerous behavior. I think for privileges such as drinking alcohol, gun ownership, getting a driver's license, uh, many forms of welfare, perhaps even the right to have children. Perhaps people should need a number of law-abiding citizens to vouch for them, citizens who would then pay a price if you, you know, horribly misbehave. Right? Most horrible behavior, such as murder, comes from people who lack bonds. 
right? We should incentivize people to bond with others, to form communities, and then give them privileges compared to those who are unable to sustain bonds with other people, right? We need to supplement our individualist society with various incentives for people to form groups that collectively take care of each other. We should allow churches and synagogues and other groups to offer health insurance and other benefits to their exclusive members. We should probably get rid of much of the 1960s civil rights legislation and civil rights legislation since and return to the traditional rights of private property and freedom of association. So you don't get to expand rights in one area without taking away rights in another area. So civil rights, as Christopher Caldwell pointed out in his book, The Age of Entitlement, you know, this vast civil rights industrial complex that we've built since the 1960s, this has come at the price of a huge increase in litigation, huge amounts of government intrusion into our lives, a reduction in the rights of private property and freedom of association. We have essentially supplanted the original American Constitution with this brand new civil rights constitution. Perhaps we need to start implementing stop and frisk policies in high crime areas where suspicious characters get stopped and, and frisked by police. We need to return to broken windows policing. For the normal person embedded in a community, embedded in a group, his purported racism, sexism, Islamophobia, homophobia, prejudice, and the like are not really the opposite of morality. They are the proper foundation for morality, right? Because this kind of person loves specific people, is loved by them, has an in-group and a hero system and everything he needs for meaning and morality. And such a person who is embedded within a group is much less likely to engage in reckless behavior than those who are unmoored. So... JF, you know, chose to leave civilization largely to lead an increasingly isolated life. Uh, we should recognize that different groups have different interests. And so anti-Semitism, for example, is as natural to Western civilization as anti-Christianity is to Jewish civilization and Islamic civilization and Japanese civilization. That's from the Steve Saylor poster, Major Khan. Right? You could do worse when you're looking for wisdom in life, then the TV show Yellowstone. Here are some of my favorite quotes from Yellowstone. Quote, Till they find a cure for human nature, a man must stand with his people. Right, that's from the very first episode. Mister, I don't know you, but if you're wearing that brand, you must be a bad man. Right, that's how the world works, right? We pair up into groups and people wear things that signify group identity. Different groups often have different interests. So if you're wearing a particular brand to you know, people in conflict with your group, you must be a bad man. Should is a useless word, almost as useless as hope. A man who puts a hand on a member of my family never puts a hand on anything else. No one has a right. You have to take a right or stop it from being taken from you. Lawyers are the swords of this century. Words are weapons now. You build something worth having, Someone's going to try to take it. All men are bad. Some of us are trying to be good. We need to recognize that uh, marginalized movements moving on here from the TV show Yellowstone, just thinking about basic truths that are sometimes difficult to state in public. You know, marginalized movements attract marginalized people. Nothing great can be built by losers. Tom Sowell's statement, there are no solutions, only trade-off. Trade-offs, uh, crime, another antisocial behavior waxes or wanes in large part depending upon our willingness to punish it. If we significantly punished violent crime, we would have much less of it. Right? If we'd simply lock up people who commit violent crime, we would significantly reduce rates of violent crime. 
uh, we often talk about how a democracy is in peril. But uh, every functioning democracy, including America's, contains considerable elements of dictatorship, socialism, capitalism, oligopoly, and other characteristics. So we are not just a democracy. There are all sorts of other things that are operating. Left and right politics are just evolutionary adaptations that have enabled our ancestors to pass on their genes. Some circumstances, an egalitarian you know, left-wing approach to reality will be more adaptive. In other circumstances, a right-wing approach will be more adaptive. So historically, the political left is associated with support for equality and tolerance of departures from tradition. The right supports authority, hierarchy, and order. If you want to preserve native life, you have to restrict invasive species. If it becomes socially acceptable for minority groups to pursue their own interests without respect to the majority's interests, Eventually, majorities will start acting in their own interests without regard for minority interests. See India under Narendra Modi. You are judged by the company you keep, right? J.F. Garapi is judged by this missing woman, Alora Patwan. Right? We attract people like ourselves. If you want to figure someone out, look at their closest friends, look at their ancestors. Okay, let's uh, get back to this analysis of JF. When it, he's saying, I'm going to kidnap the baby, I don't care if I do it with cameras, that's in this legal filing. I've read from that before. When he's the real threat to the baby, it's he's blaming her for it and instructing her on what to think and do and was suggesting she obtain an abortion if she was not happy. Threatening to leave and return to Canada and say that he did not need to talk to a therapist since I am the sanest person I know. She moved in with the family members and reports Dr. Garapay began insisting that she put his name on the lease for the apartment. So he basically tricks her into helping him get a green card. I'm going to skip through this and just tell you what happened. And during getting the green card, the green card officer says to her, is he pressuring you? And she's like, no, no, no. I want the father of my child to be able to, you know, have this right of residency where she could have totally given him up. Because they agreed if he helped her with a green card, he would sign the divorce papers after he did. After, okay, so on the following day, Dr. Garapay refused to sign the documents prepared for her attorney. So he didn't keep up his side of the bargain. He tricked her into helping her with a green card, saying that he would sign these legal documents, helping their, end their, end their marriage, and said. Okay, so Roberta Glass, True Crime Report. She's got a show that's uh, coming up here, King of the Cold Cases. The King of the Cold Cases on J.F. Garupi, John Lewin Esquire. So this will be a show going live at uh, 3 p.m. Western Time today on Roberta Glass' True Crime Report. She stated he verbalized his refusal as due to his sense of undue pressure from and distrust of her and her attorney. Ms. N reported that following the immigration interview on July 30th, she received a phone call from a neighbor about weapons being removed from her apartment. Ms. N reported that when she asked Dr. Garapay about this, he sent an email in which he noted he did not want anyone to feel unsafe or to make false accusations about abuse, quote unquote. Sometime later, Ms. N reported she received a call from a detective from the Durham Police Department working with a domestic violence union inquiring about her safety. She characterized this as, quote, terrifying, unquote. She grew quite weepy and visibly shaken while reporting this during the interview with this examiner. In August, Ms. N learned through her investig- 
investigator that Dr. Garapay was accessing her email accounts. So why I think that's interesting is that he probably had all of Alora's passwords to her phone. And if he wanted to fake a text message, I'm sure it wouldn't be too hard for him to do so. She reports that around the same time he informed her he had been audio recording her for months in order to, quote, build a case. Ms. N reported that her attorney recommended the couple use Our Family Wizard as a way of communicating about the baby and other matters. Ms. Newton stated that Dr. Garapay posted his behavior of audio, posted his behavior of audio recordings on this website as well as making claims of her abuse towards him. Is this like the greatest example of Darvo you've ever seen? Or one of them? She reported that although her landlord terminated her lease, Dr. Garapay refused to leave and made quite difficult to retrieve her belongings. He issued a notice of forbidden access to her and her attorney. Hey, here's a news story. In there were Los several Angeles fights last night between pro-Israeli pro and pro-Palestinian supporters outside of a movie screening involving Hamas's attack on Israel. The fight spilled out on the Pico Boulevard in West L.A. outside the Museum of Tolerance. There was a screening of Bearing Witness at the museum's theater. The 43-minute-long film shows the October 7th attack on Israel. Actress Gal Gadot who is Israeli, was said to be involved in organizing the screening. An estimated 200 people attended the event. Several people were detained by police, but it's unclear if anyone was actually arrested. It is also unclear if anyone... Now at 5.30, local clashes erupting over Israel's war with Hamas. Here, fists fly after a screening of a film about Hamas attacks in Israel. Good evening. This is the KTLA 5 News at 530. I'm Cher Calvin. And I'm Sandra Mitchell. In tonight for Pedro Rivera. Local officials and religious leaders now urging calm as Israel's war with Hamas enters its second month. The latest brawl erupted outside the Museum of Tolerance, which focuses on peace and understanding. KTLA's Jennifer McGraw joins us live from Westwood with more on the local tensions. Jen. Yeah, we've seen so many incidents and both sides clashing all across Los Angeles as war rages in the Middle East. But we've also seen signs of peace. And here at UCLA, it was a peaceful rally. From the river to the sea. Rallying cries on UCLA's campus for the liberation of the Palestinian people across the region. Standing firmly in solidarity with Palestine um, and the, the right to resist this occupation and violent genocidal war. To others, those rallying cries are a nod to the extermination of Israel and Jews altogether, increasingly causing tensions to boil over back here at home. Just last night, a full-on brawl at the Museum of Tolerance. People throwing punches, tackling each other, even mace at one another at a place that focuses on history of the Holocaust as it aims to promote understanding and peace. It happened after a private screening of the 40-minute video about the Hamas attacks in Israel on October 7th. The movie is compiled of disturbing and graphic videos made by Hamas terrorists themselves. But some pro-Palestinians say it's all propaganda, worsening the deeply divided sides. Survivors of the Holocaust. Meanwhile, today at the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles, a ceremony to mark the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht. It means night of broken glass, the night when Nazis killed nearly 100 Jews and destroyed synagogues and businesses. At a ceremony today, 96-year-old Holocaust survivor David Langa talked about the new wave of hatred against Jews. 
Never before have the Jews in the United States ever been so threatened as they are today. They feel a brunt, the brunt of anti-Semitism like never before. In Gaza, Israeli leaders agreed to... Okay, question in the chat. What do I think of at-home bows with a trained midwife or doula? If there's absolutely no indication that there are going to be any complications from the birth, then then I, I can see that. But I, I would want my wife or any woman that I cared about to give birth in a hospital. Now, if a woman's already given birth and there's absolutely no indications of you know any likelihood of complications, then... then uh, it makes more sense to possibly do it at home with a midwife or, or doula. Uh, overall, I just think it, it's wiser to go to a hospital. So I don't know. What, what do the experts say? I mean, if there are no indications that there will be complications from a birth, uh, how often are there complications? I read yesterday from Steve Saylor's column, Is Diversity Good for the Jews? Today I went and looked at his blog, and here are some of the best comments on his column. Diversity has always been a code word for affirmative action. His purpose has always been to benefit the oppressed at the hands of the oppressor. The reason the word has been so wildly popular on the left is it allows you to obscure the fact that you are taking away from one group and giving to another. Remember, I was playing excerpts from If Books Could Kill, a podcast by a couple of lefties. They talk about how there are all these policies that benefit one group, say Latinos or blacks. But uh, unfortunately, the right wing has perverted public discourse so that, uh, for example, the the white majority always feels disadvantaged when uh, minority groups are given advantages. And why can't the white majority simply understand that doing things for minority groups comes at no expense to the majority, but that's not how the world works. If you give things to one group, you're taking away things from another group. But affirmative action is, and you know, pro-diversity policies are usually publicized as everybody's winning here. How could you possibly oppose this? Other comments on Steve Saylor's blog. Who would have foreseen that Muslim immigrants would prioritize Muslim priorities. That was unforeseeable. The idea that diversity makes it safer for minorities never made any sense. Liberal Jews and others who support that idea are just rationalizing the Democratic Party agenda to themselves. Their enemies on the right being confusing these partisan delusions for some kind of ingenious master plan and evolutionary strategy. There is no master plan, no conspiracy, just a bunch of morons who have made party politics their cult. And then next comment. The American public's reaction to October 7th, the Hamas massacre in southern Israel, is a shock to the American establishment on par with the unexpected election of Donald Trump in 2016. I think many Jews over 50 are genuinely perplexed by the open hostility online and on the streets. When did this dramatic policy shift happen? It's like we are now in a different dimension. You would think there would be more pro-Israel protests, but they have not materialized, not even in New York, where Jews have the numbers to put up a street presence does not help that Israel's rhetoric sounds foreign to American ears. Then we had that uh, Jewish pro-Israel protester in Los Angeles, Paul Kessler, who died. His obituary in The Forward reported that he was very anti-Trump. No doubt he was thrilled that Antifa was hitting Trump supporters over the head with bike locks and getting away with it. Now he got hit over the head. 
well, maybe he didn't get hit over the head by the other protesters. It's not clear yet. It looks like, sounds like he may have attacked the pro-Palestinian guy to try to get his megaphone from him, and that this pro-Palestinian guy pushed Kessler off of him, and then Kessler fell back on his head. The uh, pro-Palestinian protester who pushed Kessler was the one who called 911. Uh, Older Americans tend to view Israel more favorably through the lens of the reportage of the 1960s and 70s out of a heroic Israeli fighter pilot in the context of the supposed Israeli David versus the Arab Goliath. Outnumbered but plucky Jews fighting desperately against the masses of Arabs, if you will. But those born later were raised with images of Israel as the Goliath who oppress, you know, poor, weak Arabs. Arabs in Israel, according to a comment here on Steve Saylor's blog, are not obsequious. They drive like maniacs. They are free with their opinions. They confidently go anywhere they please in Jewish areas. They know they're perfectly safe going where if you reverse the situation, a Jew would be torn limb from limb. Our representatives in the parliament rant and heckle and harass. They flout every law, be it about tax land use, auto registration, and water waste runoff. Right, back to this analysis of Jean-Francois Garapi and his missing wife. ...and threatened criminal trespass if she went to her apartment against his agreement or knowledge the same time he was offering for her to return to live with him and requesting to go on a family vacation with her and her family. So very much in the style of cults, love you, love you, love you, beat you, beat you, beat you, round and round and round. So I want to get to (laughs) exactly, I mean, the the part, hold on. Now, I'm not someone who invariably sides with the experts and I'm not someone who invariably sides with the the people and the populace in in some areas I think the populace are right in many areas I think the experts are right Uh, but particularly when it comes to purely medical questions I you know overwhelmingly side with the experts now at the same time I recognize that many medical procedures were done unnecessarily for, for profit uh, such as tonsillectomies, right? For decades, it was known that they were largely useless, but they continue to be done by the medical establishment for profit. I recognize that all professions try to increase their prestige and, and profit. But uh, while the race does not always go to the swift, the battle does not always go to the strong, that's usually the way to bet. So in technical expertise-specific areas, right, then I'm much more likely to go with what experts are saying. But when experts face incentives to exaggerate or to lie, then I become much more skeptical. But if a doctor told me that uh, I needed, you know, a cast to, to deal with, uh, you know, broken bone, right, and uh, you know, that, that seemed to be the consensus, you know, medical opinion, I, I would go with that if the consensus medical opinion was that it's a good idea to get vaccinated, I, I go with vaccination. But there are plenty of medical procedures and medications for which there is not strong evidence, such as uh, many SSRIs, right? Their effectiveness seems to be little better than placebo. Well, one second, where they start talking about his mind. Okay, she ultimately removed her things from the apartment in a manner arranged by her attorney and with her family's members present. Dr. Garapay was present both times. She reported and appeared to be taping her with his telephone on one of those occasions, despite the under-reporting or overly positive response style exhibited. So they're talking about his style of communicating with the 
psychiatrist, concerns remain for the finding from the other scales of the test that he took and suggests that the emotional distress that is not being reported, um, this is substantiated in the various reports about his behavior, both employment and interpersonal relationships. They suggest that he is socially introverted and experiences great discomfort with social interactions. He also appears to be lacking in self-confidence, is irritable and impatient with others, and may enjoy frightening or intimidating others. So they, they remarked on his total lack of empathy in a different part of this. He struggles with understanding others results in a lack of empathy regarding others in that he finds it near impossible to take the perspective of another. His prognosis is guarded because he perceives himself as flawless. He is flawless, perfect, magnifique, or without psychological problems. He described himself as not much on compromise, quote unquote, a finding consistent with findings from the Rorschach, wherein he can be described as inflexible and unyielding. This aspect of his functioning is likely what causes difficulties for him in relating with others in a variety of situations, this inflexibility, his lack of insight, and the level of his thought disturbance do not bode well for behavioral change. They're like, sorry, he was born with a crap personality. <laughs> not much we can do, not much the mental health field can do for him. In the management of his problems post-separation, he has consistently chosen legal remedies and actions rather than more cooperative measures. Ms. N's reports about his lack of interest in medically resolving the herpes issue is another example of his unrealistic approach to health problems. Ms. N reports that he thought he could deliver their child because of his experience working in monkeys. The psychological test results, the interview and compliance of Ms. N and the interview of Ms. Exe suggest he experiences problems in social relationships that are deeply concerning for lack of empathy, need to control the other person's behavior, emotions, and thinking, emotional reactivity on his part towards his partner. And they're saying this won't change. So this is, if he was with this way with his third wife, I can imagine he was exact like this, if not more, with Alora, And you can see that at one time he was taking her body temperature and really just asserting his will, saying, we're going to have this baby and I'm going to be the one in charge of it. Further, his behavior... A lot of similarities here between the accusations against Jean-Francois Garapi and the accusations against uh, Richard Spencer by his ex-wife. That... Uh, Narcissism, total disregard for the reality and needs of the other. Behaviors that is reported with regard to contact with obvious obstetric, obstetrical practices with personnel like Duke Hospital and with others in his postdoctoral degree program are other sources for affirmative answers to this question. A further concern during this evaluation is that Dr. Garapay seldom talked about his child, offered no specific details about his child, and seemed lacking in any knowledge about his son. Of note, that at no point in the assessment process did he appear distressed about the lack of contact with his son, or did he offer information or ask questions about his son? So he's so desperate to get this son that he doesn't even ask how the son is doing or anything. And since being cut off contact with his son, you'll never hear him say, I wonder what he's doing, refer to him. Children are off limits because he, the language, <laughs> he doesn't have the language for it. They're just like objects. Diego Rivera, thank you so much for the super sticker. I appreciate it. So that will give you a little bit of an idea about his mindset and his mind makeup by professional psychiatrists. Now, of course, he would say they are low idiot normies. He doesn't care. Okay, here's uh, the most recent show she did 18 hours ago. 
I, I don't have any comment on it, really. I just hope that they're working very hard to investigate this case. Some interesting things in this case. One of the most interesting things is the way that JF has presented Alora's life before JF as being degenerate. And one of the things used to back up that theory is a picture of Alora naked on a bicycle. I'm going to take a quick break. When I get back from the break, we're going to go through your comments and we're going to talk about the origin of that pic. Like me to ask, of course, we're going to be doing it live. You can ask your questions live. I don't know how you even pronounce that. My, my apologies to Francois from the Canadian press. So several hundred people braved the gray skies by demonstrating almost naked in the streets of Plateau, Montréal to protest against the increase in university tuition fees. So this isn't like some lone nut on a bicycle. She was, everybody was naked or almost naked. She was not alone. So it was appropriate for the time. It's sort of been thrown out there like, look, see, she's someone who could have gone out into the wilderness with no credit cards, no money, and getting rid of her phone, her one lifeline to anyone who cares about her. And I'm going to return to that subject at how that, actually, you know what, let's just get into it now. I think that this started, and JF has been using this story and others to say that she could be out there, she could be surviving, meaning with no support, no money, no means of transportation in the wilderness. And one of the things that they, that has been pointed to is this video of Alora, And this is a really good little clip of it here where she's talking. So I was uh, looking at the garbage for some food or I was playing my violin to get money. And to sleep, I would find a little hole to sleep in every day. <laughs> but often I just made friends who just invite me to sleep. So that was so this, she's talking about her time in France. And she slept outside until she made friends for a night or two. But no mention of kind of backpacking, roughing it off grid type. So this is sort of tailored to the second story of her urban hiking. It was easy. Uh, so if you want a little resume of what I did in my travel, I can tell you, okay? Um, okay, so first I went to France, but that was just because the little airplane ticket was so cheap. People are the right. Okay. So she had a cheap airline. She had an airline ticket. She had a destination. Hardly urban trekking. My issue with this story, one of them, one of the many, is that she has no goal. Or as an actor or an actress might say, what is her motivation? What is she trying to achieve besides getting away from JF and her child, if not children? As I've stated before, the talk around that area in Prince Edward Island is many people saw her very heavily pregnant around August of 2022, I believe. But no one has seen the baby. And this was, of course, COVID. JF was very anti-vax. I have put the theory out there. Did he try to do a home birth? Just like he wanted to do in the legal documents of the custody battle between his ex-wife, his third ex-wife, at a 
massive custody battle between over his son, which I believe is his first child. And he lost. He was denied total access to that child, even supervised visitation. But what came up in that is that he wanted a home birth. He wanted to birth the child because he had birthed lab monkeys. So did something go wrong in the home birth? Is that why children are a taboo subject? And when he accuses Alora before her disappearance of committing an act of terrorism, was it showing one of the children on camera? Because other people have theorized that maybe these children have not been registered as citizens in Canada. And of course, let's look at some of your brilliant comments. Thank you so much for these. You know, when I ask, like, what do you think? I really do. I really would like to know what you are thinking about. I think just another Nick 3984 says he is most likely guilty and the authorities are trying to make the case against him. They might need some solid evidence, but the upcoming cold case discussion tomorrow at six Eastern is going to enlighten me in how it could run out if nothing turns up. This, what you are doing, must be helpful here and newsworthy to us interested from this, si from this side, personally from a psychological aspect. Good work. Thank you. Tister2360 says, I wonder if everything is in her name because his wages are garnished for child support. I thought that was really astute comment. So is that a reason to not want to register one or both of your children? Also, remember the house is in Alora's name. There are many businesses, including the publisher of his book in Alora's name. And he said, oh, this is Catscan says, 2019 says, Roberta, you totally missed the point here. I appreciate you. However, the fact that Gahapé states now that Alora Patuan went on a practice run is not what he stated back then. When Alora left him first time, he did not state that it was a practice run. However, now he states that Alora let him as a practice run for her plan to live in the wild. So what, she's, what he or she is talking about, his story is BS. Thank you, CatScan. So I don't know if I was talking about practice runs in that episode, but thank you for bringing it up. We were looking at the first time Alora left J.F. Garapé and how he demanded that she return in 24 hours, and he had seven women ready for insemination. And how cruel it was, and how I was looking at it as a, what I thought it was, was that he did kick her out. And there was an interesting comment on social media, I believe this is Facebook, and from a truck driver said, or someone who picked her up hitchhiking says, she probably just headed back to Quebec. She's always at the ESSO, I assume that the gas station, in Borden, looking for drives towards Quebec. I have taken her once myself to Moncton before. That's where her father teaches, by the way. It's also the scene, coincidentally, of her last sighting, one that I'm very skeptical of. I have taken her once myself to Moncton before, and then she got out of my truck and decided she should go to Prince Edward Island. And then was told that another trucker picked her up on the next day in Borden and took her back towards Quebec. She's been doing that since COVID started. 
So COVID is around the birth of her first daughter, for her daughter, the oldest child, that people have seen Jay with JF. So she, I think what this is, is not a, this is probably, I don't know how habitual this is. I'm skeptical of how habitual she was always asking for a ride. It's odd when she owns a car. Did she have no money and no money to gas a car? Is that why she's always hitching? And I don't know if she is always hitching. Did this happen once around that time when she left around the 24 hour period? That's my hunch. And Truck drivers talk in that area. It's a very small area. And they're like, oh, yeah, I saw her too. But had she really left or been let off at this gas station? She is 5'10", very memorable. I just find it hard to believe that no one would see her. Tuesday Money, thank you so much for the $10 super. But they were in She was writing him when she was 17 years old on Twitter. So this influence, he had a long time to influence her. His, I, I remember once I met a young woman in her twenties who became a Hollywood actress, and she she told me she was something like fifteen when she read about me in Rolling Stone, and she put up the the article on on her wall, and that she something like being obsessed with me since then. Uh, I, I behaved, you know, strictly in an honorable manner. But uh, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's flattering. Ideas and according to Alora. Just want to show you one other thing. So she was working. She was at, going to school to become an auto mechanic, and she even made the advertisement for the school. So there she is on the left. And, of course, we know that the school was right near where, of course, she got in trouble for graffiti. And if you do a Google Maps search, maybe I will show you next episode. I'm sorry to pull it up. But you can see that it's very, very near to where she was in school for auto mechanics. And, of course, this is the news piece about it. I saw those graffiti. I said again, graffiti's. Actually, I didn't know what it was about, and um, it's always frustrating. Got to paint over again. I looked up the name, and uh, I saw that hey, he wants to make ethno states, uh, GF Yepi, and he's from the province of Quebec. Never heard of him. And uh, from what I read, some of it on Wikipedia, I didn't quite agree with them. So there's... It looks like a male, but I have a feeling it's a female, especially it's written in pink. And um, while especially looking at the camera at the uh, front of the building, the writing, uh, the... I mean, let's have a look. I, I think it's funny that this woman, who's a little a little bit masculine herself, thinks that this is a man. Because if you are familiar with Alora, this could be no one else. This is how she moves. This is what she looks like. And the things that she put were all devoted to the world of JF. So it, it really can be nobody else. It's not. 
<laughs> not a hard to solve crime. Person completed the graffiti, wasn't happy about it because they left and came back and put a heart. Maybe they didn't want people to think it was anything not extreme, but not as bad as the message the person wanted to show. Well, she's that's interesting that she concentrated on the heart. Well, obviously, the heart is like Alora's feelings towards JF. I would think that would be my interpretation and her feelings towards this whole world that she's so becoming so obsessed with. So sad that it's something so sinister and creepy, in my opinion. Interviews and before it got changed just a little bit. Something uh, personal that I'm forced to talk about at this point. It's, uh, I've been wanting to keep it relatively calmer. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm going to go back because the sound was so low. Let's try this again with a little higher sound here. So he's forced to talk about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. Wouldn't you be dying to talk about it? But he's let four months go by. So now it's kind of like this awkward situation. What are you going to say? <laughs> like, I'm forced to talk about it. I thought no one would notice. But unfortunately, someone noticed that she was gone. So now I'm forced to talk about it because it's all about me. Gosh darn her for forcing me to talk about this uncomfortable subject and those worried people. Those annoying, worried people that called this in. Something uh, personal that I'm forced to talk about at this point. It's a... Uh... I've been wanting to keep it relatively calmer and less uh, less public, but uh, I've been forced by the by the various events because people have discovered about it, and so I might as well talk about it instead of letting rumors develop and all of the uh, all of the messy information that can step uh, that can stem from it. Um, so yeah, it's the disappearance of Mama JF. So he's saying like I'm going to get control over the story. You're going to hear my story. This is the story I want out there. And it's really interesting in retrospect what we know happened with the police, which is that they kept asking him to come in and talk to them again and again and again, knocking on his door, waking him up at nine in the morning, and then eventually asking him to take a lie detector. So we know that his control of the information wasn't exactly forthcoming or you know, I would think that it was probably pretty friendly between him and the police at this point. But none of this says to me, the story, as we go on, it says to me, not a suspect. Mama JF has been disappearing in the sense of not leaving, uh, not leaving any contact, not leaving information about where she was. Uh, and I titled my episode, The Cost of Liberty, because I didn't want any of this. I'm just a family guy, and I've always been wanting to provide and sicker for people around me uh, but there is one thing wow look at that so he's smiling and then he, he gets there's this one thing and then he gets a very aggressive look comes over his face the one thing is that 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 i cannot tolerate is some kind of destruction of the family so was her act of terrorism something to do with the family i think so i think she was trying to show one of her children 
Other people have suggested maybe a pregnancy test. He seems to demand that these women have as many babies as they possibly can turn out within two years of the last one. I cannot do in our society. I cannot stop you from doing crazy stuff. I cannot stop you from exposing yourself to risks when you say the words, I want to do it. When, when you claim your own liberty, you are on your own and I cannot do anything to protect To protect you. So when my pregnant wife says she wants to go say, I don't know, explore Gaza Strip or I don't know what, <laughs> I really don't know what, something extremely dangerous, you say, go do it. Is he into, I, you know, I'm just thinking of the most dangerous things because these are at odds. So first you say you're a family man, but your belief in liberté overrides that. And when someone wants to do something, he cannot get in the way of their will. Everyone must do their own will, even if it hurts me. But we know that this didn't hurt him. We know that it was, it's been four months of happiness. He's going to save $2,000 this year on his heating bill. Oh, yeah, he's saving money. He's you know got new women to inseminate. That Alora was so wasteful and wasteful, destructive to the planet, a bad citizen, bad wife, and no thought as to his children, even though he's such a family man, that their mother is missing. So at one hand, he's this alpha man protector. It's just not a consistent, not a consistent worldview there. Text you. Or and not even a consistent worldview, not a consistent story. That's really what I mean. Not a consistent story. So <clears throat> that, uh, I don't know if Mama JF is in danger. I don't know where she is. Uh, but at this point, I'm forced to talk about it because people are spreading rumors on the internet. Because So, so I'll just give you my, <clears throat> my perspective on all of this. And, and you know, people are, are accusing me of murder on, on the internet. It's like, you guys don't know. You guys don't know the police. I've been speaking with the feds on an every... He's right. We don't know. He doesn't say, I didn't do it. I don't have it in me to do it. That's a favorite one usually you, you hear. I couldn't hurt a fly type stuff. I save ants and put them outside when I find them in my home. You see that kind of stuff around this topic with people who end up being convicted of these kind of crimes that he's being accused of. But instead, he says, we don't know. And he's right. We don't know. We don't know what happened. But instead of denying it and saying that we're wrong, we're meant to assume we're wrong by saying you don't know. But it's not a denial. Every day basis uh, for a couple of days now for maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of days. For a couple of days, I've been speaking uh, to the police <clears throat> on a regular basis. So it all stems from Mama Jeff, you guys know, and I've stated it publicly in June, she left. She didn't want, uh, she, I mean, it's not even clear why she left. And she's done it in the past. You guys have seen it, who have been following the show for years. Uh, she, she wanted to go away. So that's, that's all uh, we often know with Mama Jeff. She wants to go away. She had done it once and had come back uh, to us. Um, weeks after, uh, and you'll remember, she, she came on the show on the day she came back. 
and she said something along the lines of, uh, well, I touched you. You didn't want to be with me anymore. Uh, and so. <clears throat> Did you catch that? Did you catch that little duper's delight when he said, his little smile when he said, and she came back and she said, well, you said you didn't want, you love, you didn't love me anymore. That I haven't heard anyone uh, state that she's a, a drug addict or has drug or alcohol problems. Uh, have you? That's what he's. That's what she really said. We went over that last episode. But I think that's absolutely true, that he kicked her out in order to get more control, that they had some fight. He kicked her out and then said, oh, yeah. And now it's a great example of her just disappearing off the face of the earth when she was going to be with her family, trying to get to her family. And she said, she even says it in that episode. She says, I was trying to get to my family. I couldn't make it. Either she changed her mind or she didn't have the money. But it, this is way different than going out into the wilderness with no plan, no end goal, nothing. And, and I said to her, no, no, you left of your own will. Uh, but, but she says yes, and then she says yes, but I thought, I thought you wanted me to leave. That is sometimes the, the state of delusion in female minds and I can't do anything about this. I have zero control over this. If we were in the society, the Christian society of 1920, maybe I could file some report and say, hey, my wife is a little crazy. She's a little out there. Can I control, can I own her, basically? <laughs> and I'm sure that, that there were, uh, I mean, basically you didn't have to file that paper. So did you guys catch that? So first he says, can I control, he almost says the word control her. So he, and he realizes that he's giving too much away and then he changes it to, can I own her and starts laughing. So he often puts what he's really feeling and his real attitudes and then starts laughing. So he can say, have plausible deniability and say, oh, it was a joke. I don't really feel like that. I don't really want to own these women. I just want to inseminate them. Come on. <laughs> One after another, many, many, many female specimens. It's, it's just what every woman desires, right? But he says control first. In 1920s. And then it becomes own. 20s. Because in the, in the 1920s, this was called marriage. <laughs> but we are not in the 1920s. And we are in 2023 where uh, we have an experiment going on in society. What happens when you let these females do whatever the fuck they want? Well, <clears throat> what happens is that they sometimes make bad decisions. So, um, in June, she left. And See, I was the greatest guy in the world. I was supporting her. And it sounds like Alora. It's Alora's car, Alora's house. Alora's publishing the book. And maybe this is all a way to dodge sending bigger or showing a, a, showing, I don't know, showing that he owns more things. But certainly the house is a pretty big thing to own. And would make make give her a little bit of power. She, you would think she would be able to kick him out. So why is she leaving? Why isn't she kicking him out if they're? Oh, because she's making a bad decision. She wants to go out into the wilderness and do nothing. Oh wait, we have to correct that story. Now she wants to urban hike, but nobody's seen her since that one very sus spotting. But talk about. I mean, what we expect is for her. And Peter Hyatt talks about this concept. We expect him to bring her up to angelic levels. 
even the most hardened realist, when someone is missing or in peril or presumed in peril, we hear they become the most perfect person in the world. Instead, she is destructive. It's been great without her. She was wearing an ugly homeless person's coat. She makes bad choices. So if she's dead, it's her own fault, not mine. Because you guys couldn't know. Not that I'm going to deny doing it, but you just couldn't know that I did it. Um. And two days after leaving, so she left and she had a whole plan. She had, she had bought uh, camping material. She was on her way to some sort of survivalist trip. From what I understood, it looked like she was preparing for life in the wild. Uh, she promised me when she left that she would always be reachable and that I would be able to reach her to deal with all of the official papers. You know that she owns a lot of stuff and sometimes I need her signature. And I uh, how, how often are women into survivalist treks alone? This strikes me as uh, very rare among women, particularly. Rare among men, rare among women, but very rare among women. I was like, and, and although, you know, we, we do have legal remedies for this, I was like, uh, if you totally disappear, you might put me in trouble on some biz, on some, you know, getting utilities and everything. So, so she promised to me, that she wouldn't fully disappear. Um, and uh, she went away. And two days later, she, she talked to me on the phone and sent a message. By, by the way, everything I, I tell you is things I have told to the police. So it's, uh, it's not, uh, there's no secret coming out that you guys are hearing. It might be secret from a public perspective, but it's all things that the feds have been knowing for a couple of days. So there's no secret. So he's telling us what there, what, what, what there isn't. There's no secrets here. So there's a little admission in the negative. So, he so if this was your sister, if this was your daughter, if this was your niece or your aunt, uh, how would you feel about J.F. Garupi and his choices? Holding back something secret. And it's all around this phone call and this text message, which I think an easy way to do it would be to take the bus to Moncton, which is a two and two hour, two plus hour bus ride and back. The bus only runs once a day, so you'd have to stay over somehow in Moncton. Send the text message from Alora's phone to your phone. Make a call. He said the reception wasn't good so then they had to text and and look at how few details there are about the context of the conversation and the sentiment so the last uh, message that she sends me uh, in june two days after leaving and it had been apparent i think I, I may have been in contact for a couple of times during these two days so i was sure that she was progressing through whatever trip she wanted to do i knew that she was still alive uh, but two days uh, after leaving, she says, I have changed my plans. I will not hold my promise uh, toward you. I will not be reachable. And, I, and it's like, okay. Uh, I, uh, she says, I have a new plan. And I'm like, does your new plan involve any sort of attack against me or the family? Because you guys know how, mo how important that is to me. She says, you don't have to be worried. My new plan does not involve you. I'm just going to change cell phone. Now so his first thought is that 
she's going to attack him or the family. Why would that be your first thought? It would be about yourself. Are you going to be okay? Do you have enough money? Where are you going? What should I tell your family? What should I tell your friends? But JF has a habit of answering these questions that he thinks would be the obvious questions that people would ask. Well, is she going to say something negative about you? Is she going to expose you? Who thinks that way? I knew that she had left without any sort of electronic tracking. You know how the police can track you with your credit card, with your debit card. She had left with nothing but her phone. So when she said that to me through text, I concluded, okay, she's going off grid. You know, she's going full survivalism. <laughs> and kind of in her, in her fashion. I mean, that's the way Mama JF is. So changing her phone to me, it meant I'm... I'm dropping potentially my own identity behind. I'm potentially disappearing in nature. Okay, this is getting glitchy. I'm potentially, I mean, she could be anywhere from there. Uh, so, and that's what. All right, I'm going to just try to take a break and try to fix the glitchiness her few nights. And I assume she had money and a cell phone and credit cards on her. And she had a objective to travel through Europe. But this is like, I, I don't know where I'm going. I'm getting rid of everything. But he didn't, but she didn't say that. She just said, I'm getting rid of my cell phone. And you don't ask why? You don't ask more questions? The question you ask is about yourself. What should I tell the kids? Will you be back? But he seems to know that she's not coming back. He seems to know where she is because Otherwise, why isn't he looking for her? Jokingly, half jokingly, but it's like she, she's a professional fugitive who doesn't commit crimes. So it's like she's going to be hiding from you as, as hard as she can, while also not having anything to reproach to herself. But that's just how she is. So, I mean, she, she and so from there, I'm like, I'm going to drop myself behind. I'm going to disappear. You're not going to be able to reach me. So that is uh, what I've been knowing since June. And of course, you're faced with the big. So like what I'm watching is I'm watching this kind of the, his fake laugh, which is always so interesting. And he puts in, it must work for him or he wouldn't do it. People must believe it when he puts on that fake laugh. <laughs> I told the police, she's a 007. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, these 007, these fugitives who commit no crimes. And then there's just like a minute where Real anger comes over his face where he has like these flashes of memory. That's what I'm seeing. Should I call the police? This is a willing woman, a willing adult woman doing her willing stuff. So I've not called the police because in my view. T-shirts coming soon. Willing woman doing her willing woman stuff. <laughs> merch, merch to come. Who doesn't want that T-shirt? Who doesn't know what that means? You know, the, you know, the willing women doing their willing women stuff, like going out into the wilderness with no credit cards and no money, you know, that kind of stuff. It's so outrageous. It's so ridiculous that people like Andrew Wilson are like, he knows what is to, what he knows to be true. Got to go over that interview with him where he talks about interviewing JF sometime, but he's like, yeah, they're both unusual people. So. This is going to happen. People are just going to go missing and fall off the edge of the earth.
especially when they're a mother and their boyfriend never looks for them, never calls it in and says it's been great without them. And it discourages the police from looking for her, for her, excuse me. This is so something we just don't see in these kind of stories. You, there was no evidence of criminality. There was no evidence of distress. It looked like to me, someone who has decided to go survivalism. Will I report someone for being survivalist? I mean, th this reminds me of the, of the Facebook post. You know, it, has one of your loved ones gone to survivalism? Has one of your loved ones bought too much camping material? So we know her camping material was like two items, according to him. And they're small items. Because when that sighting in Moncton came up, which I believe is a sus sighting, false sighting, which you often see in missing person cases. The only person that knows that the 19th is important is JF. And that's exactly when she sighted in Moncton, an area where we know her father teaches science at university. <laughs> that is literally one of the Facebook posts, but I don't want to be in the society where buying camping material gets you reported to the feds. And I am bound I am bound to Mama J.F. Terrace because I've loved her and I still love her and I still can. So you're saying that it was her, in her best interest to make what you've already admitted was a bad decision. That doesn't make any sense. If you're protecting her best interest and you're very intent on keeping the family together, it doesn't really go with, I just let her go because she wanted to go. And she went to go be with her parents before. So it's not, there. this has never happened in your relationship. So why are you trying to normalize it? Consider, I, I consider myself allied to her forever. Uh, forever, no matter what she does, even if she goes out there going, getting other boyfriends, I consider myself tied to her forever. So at this point, I'm in front of this information. And I've decided that this was not warranting a call to the police in June. And I've spoke to her, I've spoken to her family, and they thought similarly, you know, this is Mama JF. Uh, <clears throat> she is an out there woman, and uh, it's not the first time she does this. Uh, in the absence of any evidence of harm. See, so he tried to put it out that her family agrees. But th the investigation, as we've already gone over with the police, have been quoted as saying, we don't investigate missing persons if people leave willingly. And it wouldn't have progressed to the stage of a lie detector if the police bought this story. So he's really trying to sell it by adding her family because he knows her family isn't public. And he knows they're not going to publicly contradict him. Um, or that she's, she's doing something evil to someone else. There's no reason to call the police. And in fact, we even had someone in the family uh, talked loosely to a federal investigator who was friends with us and just asking, you know, what is this? Is this a disappearance or is this just a woman? Uh, <laughs> just a woman doing whatever she wants. And, and, and uh, the you know, because women, what he's insinuating there is that women make bad decisions all the time. They shouldn't be in charge of their own decisions. Men should. And he has a whole enthusiastic audience of men that agree with him on that.
But the investigator, so he's going to say an investigator heard this story and heard his attitude and agreed with him. So he's putting an appeal to authority in here. The investigator had actually, I mean, from what I heard, this is not an interaction that I had myself. But someone who was worried in the family spoke to an investigator and said, uh, look, this, those are the facts. It's a woman. She leaves like this. She wanted to leave. She gets herself equipped with camping material and all. Is this a disappearance? Is this something we should signal? And uh, the investigator had said, well, no, this looks like a, a, a consensual trip. So I was reassured that not only was my judgment uh, converging toward uh, the fact that Mama JF does not need help and that she, she's a free woman, she can decide to do this. Uh, and I'll See, don't help her. She doesn't need help. Don't look for her, guys. Because you will be someone getting in the way of her liberté. <sighs> also, these, uh, there was these social signals reinforcing that I wasn't the only one thinking this. Other people were thinking this also. So that was the state in June and July. But then, you know, the months passed and now we're in October. When is it that worries are justified? And so there was a building up of stress in the people who love her. And my position has always been to all of these people, to any friend of Mama JF and to any person involved. My position has been, I saw her go. I saw her wanting to, to go. And so I, I don't need to call the police. But if you feel that it warrants a call to the police, I respect you and you go. See, you go ahead because I'm so innocent. See, I, you know, if you're worried, go ahead. But I'm still not worried. He said it was okay not to be worried in June or July. But now he's recognizing that four months go by and you should be worried. But he's still not worried. Go ahead and do your stuff. But don't expect me to cooperate. Because I got, but I don't mind if you call the police even though it's a huge nuisance and they're knocking on his door and waking him up. This is madness. The story is madness. Go ahead and call them. And I will not say who ended up calling, but someone, someone ended up noticing that, that somehow Mama JF was missing and, and, and maybe knew about me. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how. So does he look excited that that happened? He's like, well, he's flattered that maybe they, they knew about him. And they knew about JFG tonight. They might have watched me on Odyssey broadcast every night at 7 p.m. Eastern time. <laughs> like, what he gets from it is that someone might know who he is because we know someone close to that. Okay, disturbing story there. Wonder what happened to her. This is uh, John J. Mearsheimer speaking yesterday about Ukraine. Israel, China, U.S., great power politics. I think that's too strong. I think that before October 7th, it was becoming clear that the Ukrainians were losing the war, that the Russians were going to win. And the United States and its European allies were therefore losing interest in Ukraine. They were beginning to think, this again, before October 7th, that it did not make sense to continue supporting Ukraine at the levels that we had been supporting them uh, in the previous year and a half. Uh, and then along comes October 7th, and that forces us to refocus our attention on the Middle East in a really serious way and takes us away from focusing on Ukraine the way we had been doing so since February of 2022. So I think uh, there's no question that at this point in time, 
uh, we, number one, think uh, Ukraine is in deep trouble and is not going to win the war. And we think we have more important fish to fry in the Middle East. And therefore, we are diminishing our commitment to Ukraine, I think, in a significant way. Well, you wouldn't know that from the request of the White House, which wants another $68 billion for Ukraine. I don't think they're going to get it. The Republicans in the House are not going to go for this. But the president wants another $68 billion on top of the $113 billion uh, he's given uh, already. What, what would he do with it? Would he start reconstructing uh, infrastructure? Or would they be attempting to fight the Russians and what the whole world now knows is a losing venture? Well, they want to make sure that the Russians don't win too big a victory. Uh, uh-huh. I think that they fully understand that... Uh, the Ukrainians are not going to reconquer all that territory they've lost, but they also at the same time want to make sure that the Ukrainian army doesn't collapse and that the Russians then overrun uh, an even larger portion of Ukraine than they've now overrun. Uh, So I think that's really what's going on here. Since uh, October 7th, the uh, chief of staff of the Ukrainian military told the Economist, General Zeluzhny, told the Economist magazine that the war is a stalemate. President Zelensky's people erupted and condemned that two days later the chief of staff of the army chief of staff was assassinated with a booby-trapped birthday uh, gift. Uh, And the president, President Zelensky, has canceled the elections in 2024. (laughs) None of this looks good. No, well, the Ukrainians are in deep trouble. There's just no getting around that. And what Zeluzhny did was admit that. Uh, He said it's a stalemate, but actually it's not a stalemate. It's a stalemate if you focus on the amount of territory that either the Russians or the Ukrainians have captured uh, over the past few months. And it doesn't appear to be the case that either side has captured much territory, and therefore people say this is a stalemate. But that's not the way to think about this. What really matters in a war of attrition is the casualty exchange ratio. And there's no question that the Ukrainians have suffered many more casualties than the Russians have. And the Ukrainians didn't have the manpower to match the Russians at the beginning uh, of this conflict. So what's happening here is the Ukrainians are being bled white by the Russians. Uh, And this is the reason that the Ukrainians uh, cannot win this war and the Russians are likely to win it. And Zeluzhny knows this. And if you look at what he's saying, he's saying that we need a magical weapon or some magical weaponry that we can put together uh, to produce a victory over the Russians. But there's no magical weapon or weaponry available. And what this is, an old-fashioned war of attrition, a slugging match, uh, and the Ukrainians are doomed. This is all, in my view, and, and please take issue with me if you disagree, Professor, the fault of the West and primarily the fault uh, of the United States. There was Minsk II, which the United States basically said to Ukraine, forget about it. There was an agreement for uh, a peaceful resolution of, um, of uh, President Putin's fears with Ukraine not joining NATO. The United States and Britain said, forget about that. Then they said, we have your back. Don't worry about that. And here we are, 500,000 human beings dead later. Well, I'm certainly not going to disagree with you. I think there's no question that uh, had we not pursued NATO expansion into Ukraine, uh, this war in all likelihood would never have happened. Uh, But we insisted on bringing Ukraine into NATO. And this, of course, led to the outbreak of war on February 24th, 2022. And then you want to remember that shortly after the war started, this is in March, uh, the following month, uh, the Ukrainians and the Russians began peace negotiations in Istanbul. And by almost all accounts, there was a reasonable chance that the two sides could cut a deal and shut the war down. And the United States and the British came in and told the Ukrainians to walk away from the negotiations uh, because we felt that we could defeat the Russians. And then over the course of 2022. uh, So I want to talk to you about the the, in that other war, 
is the government of Israel committing war crimes? Well, if you look at the uh, Hamas attacks on uh, Israel on October 7th, almost everybody agrees that Hamas committed war crimes. Of course. Uh, in killing those civilians. Well, if you look at how the Israelis have reacted to what Hamas did, uh, they are waging a punishment campaign uh, in Gaza. They are punishing the civilian population. Uh, the IDF spokesman has made it clear that this is a campaign uh, that is not aimed at precision targeting. Uh, the IDF spokesman made it clear uh, that the Israelis are interested in causing a huge amount of destruction in Gaza. And in the process, they are going to kill huge numbers of civilians. It's stunning how many civilians, including children, have been killed by the Israelis. And it seems to me that when you do that, you're committing war crimes. If the Israelis were going to great lengths to target just Hamas and avoid civilian, as almost everybody says, and I've said this, I believe, on your show in the past, I think once the dust settles, uh, uh, his goose is cooked and he'll be pushed out of office. But for the time being, I think that he'll probably uh, Talking about remain BB. in power. BB Netanyahu. I'm going to play a, a tape for you uh, from 1992. You'll recognize both people uh, in this tape, and we will use it as a springboard for discussing <clears throat> the Professor Mearsheimer views of the unique relationship between Israel and the United States. Uh, you make the observation in your book, and you say that you have said it many times when you were president of the United States, that no president is ever going to desert Israel, right? Correct. I put it more bluntly. I said, as I told congressional leaders during the 1973 Yom Kippur War, no American president will let Israel go down the two, right. Democrat or Republican. It's not an issue. That is stated fairly categorically. And yet in your book, you make it clear at the same time that Israel really is not of any enormous strategic value to the United States anymore. That's correct. So why then would the United States continue to burden itself with huge loans, in some cases outright grants, to the Israelis, jeopardize possibly uh, young American fighting men, uh, when there is no strategic value involved, or little? Because the United States is concerned by more than strategic values. Uh, that's maybe a weakness, but it's the way we are. Uh, and there are moral issues involved here. We don't have an alliance with Israel, as you know. They're not a, uh, an ally of the United States in the technical sense. But we have a bond to Israel that's much stronger. It's a moral commitment. A moral commitment because of what happened uh, during the Holocaust, and a moral commitment because it is a democracy, the only democracy in that area. I'm sure that brings back uh, memories. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, Steve Walt and I, as you know, wrote a book called The Israel Lobby uh, and U.S. Foreign Policy that dealt explicitly with this issue. Right. And of course, Nixon is correct that Israel is not a significant strategic asset to the United States. There have been times when it has been something of a strategic asset, but uh, not much of a strategic asset. You can't make the argument that the special relationship between the United States and Israel, uh, which has no parallel in history, it is very important to understand that the relationship between the United States and Israel is unprecedented in world history in its closeness. We support the Israelis almost no matter what. So you can't make a strategic argument for that relationship. And I also think you cannot make a moral relationship. You can make a moral argument, but uh, you have to qualify it in large part because of it, how Israel has treated the Palestinians. Uh, it's hard. Okay, Frame Game Radio, a.k.a. Mike Benz, visiting San Francisco. I am here in San Francisco, and I was not ready for this. Uh, it is the most. Come on, man. Don't. <sighs> Bloody hell. X. I I'm trying to do an excerpt here of 
Mike Ben's dystopian place I've ever seen in my life. I have lived in the bowels of some pretty rat-infested, smelly, stinky, dystopian, third-world-adjacent places. I've lived in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. I've lived in North Philadelphia. I've lived in Northeast D.C. Uh, I'm like... I, I I was ready for this. I'm I'm in the, the Bay Area this week and I thought I was I was ready for for San Francisco mode and uh, I wasn't. I wasn't. The smell is I've never experienced anything like this in my life. You know, like um I went for a run this morning. I tried to do like thirty-five blocks and every two or three blocks I would have to duck into a store like a, like a Walgreens or a CVS or a coffee shop or a convenience store just to catch my breath from the smell on the street. Not even for like, from running. It's because the it feels so carcinogenic. It feels like what radiation poisoning must feel like on the moon or something. I mean, it's, it is, being on the streets of San Francisco is as inhospitable as, as being on the, as being on the surface of the moon is what it what it feels like honestly um it's like carcinogenic except if instead of like from cigarette smoke or radiation it was from human feces i've never seen anything like this i've never viscerally felt it i was i was midway through the run when i realized how strange it was having lived in cities my entire life to be in a major metropolitan city and to not see any dogs on the street uh, you know, there's no, you know, you go to New York City, even in Brooklyn, you, you know, you're, you're going to see, you're going to. Wait, is this something about, hey, hey, Mike, it's, it's Chinatown. Uh, dogs, dogs are delicious. Uh, God forbid that. Uh, well, uh, that that's what he was going to say. So this is my former professor at UCLA. I took two classes with him. He was an inspiration in my journey towards conversion to Orthodox Judaism. Russell Roberts, host of Econ Talk podcast, author of many books. He grew up a, a secular Jew and in his 20s became an Orthodox Jew. And he's now the president of a small liberal arts college in Jerusalem. Israel has been um, uh, saintly in the way it's treated the Palestinians. I think we have a lot in the, to look at in the mirror going forward. And I'm very, um, I am hopeful that in the day after Israel takes a long look at how we have dealt with this issue in the past and realizes that a different approach is needed. Uh, so having said that, there's an immense amount of ignorance. And I, I say that word is just a factual matter. The, you know, when you press people for what, what does it mean to say from the river to the sea? What is antifada? What does genocide mean? What does ethnic cleansing mean? What has Israel done with respect to civilians? Does Hamas tell the truth, et cetera? There's a whole range of things you can think about and look at. And I think most people aren't not surprisingly, terribly informed about this at the level that that the uh, the more intense feelings people are, intense feeling people are, and I think a lot of what we're seeing on college campuses is, well, people just instinctively side with their team. I think that's what's going on. All right back to Russell. They don't have any power. They don't have tanks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that moral compass, I believe, is broken. But that's the way they look at the world. Now, how do we get to that way of looking at the world? Is I think tied into some of the your observations about postmodernism, Marxism, and so on. But uh, the part that's Look, it just comes down to whose team are you on? You don't need postmodernism and Marxism to explain. A white Christian America is overwhelmingly 
favorable to Israel compared to feeling much kinship with the Arabs and the Muslims in the Middle East. A more diverse America is less feeling a connection to Israel. It's really surprising when you think about it is that the places that are the, the disciplines that are Marxist, the disciplines that are uh, postmodern, they're an ever shrinking part of American college campuses. And yet the people who are studying those things get angrier and louder. Uh, and and this is what we're looking at. It's deeply disturbing. Ross, it seems like there's been a huge generational shift. Less than a week after the appalling attacks uh, of October 7th, a poll was uh, conducted in the U.S. that found that 65-year-olds and older were 81% supportive of Israel's military response to Hamas. Amongst 18 to 34-year-olds, it was 27%. And there's similar polling in the UK, which shows a huge generational shift. And this has been making me think along a kind of strategic line. Is Israel's position weaker today in any sense you wish to use the word than it was 50 years ago when there was a surprise attack launched by Egypt and Syria uh, in the Yom Kippur War? I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the events of that time, partly because I'm writing about it in my second volume of the Henry Kissinger biography. But I can't help feeling that compared with 1973, Israel's position is actually quite a bit worse today, not least because Israel is losing support amongst young people in the West. Is that a reasonable thing to say? Uh, a couple thoughts. Uh, young people get older, so some of their views will change. I think over time, I don't think they'll necessarily persist. Uh, I think back to, and you could, you'll know this much better than than, than I do, uh, that in, was it 1939, 38, when um, college students in England said, we will not fight for king or country? Uh, it's yeah. not uncommon for young people to be pacifists for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but in terms of the strategic uh, position that Israel is in, I, I want to take it in a different direction, actually get, get your thoughts, um, you know, NHR. I, what some people have suggested about the current moment is that it is forcing Israel to face the reality that we cannot defend ourselves alone. That if, for example, we were forced to fight a three-front battle, the three fronts being Gaza, the West Bank, which is right now seething a little bit, simmering and threatening to boil over, and then, of course, Hezbollah, which is the, the bigger the biggest threat of all three, uh, it is only the presence of those two aircraft carriers and a nuclear submarine off the coast of Israel that has uh, restrained Hezbollah and Iran from uh, ratcheting up the pressure on Israel right now, and that we can, we would not survive this moment if the 150,000 missiles of Hezbollah, which are, again, much larger and much more accurate than the ones in Gaza, were raining down on the civilian population of Israel. So in that sense, I worry that we are much more vulnerable. Let me give the counter view. The counter view is we still have a nuclear weapon. And that, that talks a lot, at least in the short run, while others in the area don't have them. The head of the army. Yeah, many supporters of Israel believe that uh, Israel would not survive without American support. Let's get a little bit more on. Uh, come on. Why can't I fast forward here? It was a positive in my day yesterday. And for everybody who cares about justice, the JF is back at it again. For a while, he's keeping his mouth shut, but now he has gone back to talking and starts to show off like this. Take a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jeff G tonight. Yesterday, I was on a break. I tweeted, I'll be on a break tonight. House cars with de-stainer and sterilizing bleach. And people have, uh, have been laughing their ass off. Some people were saying he has tasted blood again. <laughs> 
last time I cleaned my house with sterilizing bleach, uh, I got accused of being a murderer by Ramsey Paul. Holy shit. I, <clears throat> I did it again, I guess. Uh, I, I got away with it once more. Yesterday, I again, cleaned my house with uh, my cleaning material. Uh, I, we have two very important uh, subjects to... Big surprise. <laughs> Big surprise there. So what he's saying is that every time he cleans his house, people think he's a killer and he's laughing. Not once has he looked for Alora Patwan, the missing mother of his child. And I'll just say child because no one has seen this second child. And if you were following my previous episodes, he told his first wife that he could birth the child and because he had helped monkeys give birth in his science training. So very odd to be laughing. And so he's basically strawmanning everybody's argument and saying, well, it's because I cleaned. No, what happened is you accused Alora of terrorism, of doing something terroristic, of showing something that is the number one rule that you're not allowed to show on stream. So was it the child? Was it herself? Was it something else? We don't. Man, Twitter keeps uh, seizing up. But uh, anyway, that's the, the essence of the excerpt I wanted to show you. All right, here's a discussion. Punished for being that way. Between a couple of uh, therapists talking about uh, uh, hum human tendencies towards the good, not not just not just uh, evil. So let me. Our this. true nature. Well, that's really interesting for starters and is a good framework for some of the stuff that I would like to take a little time to focus on now because I would love to return. So Judaism's a little more optimistic about human potential than Christianity. So classic Christian doctrine is we're all born with original sin. The classic Jewish doctrine on human nature is that we're born with two yearnings, two yetzes, two forms of desire, one towards good one towards evil, but uh, Judaism recognizes that uh, it's frequently easier to do evil. So compared to humanism, both Christianity and classical Christianity, classical Judaism, more pessimistic about human nature, uh, Judaism more optimistic about human potential than classical Christianity. Judaism recognizes that we, we are born with an innate desire to do good as well as an innate desire to do bad. I thought this is a very articulate case for the liberal, modern, secular perspective on why people on the left and secular people believe that uh, people are basically good. It's not a, a view that I agree with, but I, I think it's a good articulation of the other side's point of view here. So almost all right-wing politics begins with the perspective that people are not basically good, and virtually all left-wing politics begins with the perspective that people are basically good. And to that structure of you have an awareness of something, you have some painful experience associated with it, you cut it off in some way, that cutting it off prevents you from becoming self-aware in a useful way. Maybe what you're becoming self-aware of is some positive trait that you've pushed down for a variety of reasons, as you were saying, Dad, the example of pushing down a sort of natural lovingness because you don't want to give it to a certain person at a point in time. Or if the thing that you're becoming aware of is some maybe slightly more problematic tendency that you need to apply. And San Francisco, I'm listening. Elliot Blatt, go ahead and unmute at your convenience. 
Elliot, come on in. A bit more top-down monitoring, too, where you need to pick up at the root uh, for whatever reason. Sorry. And sorry, hey, what's, in that what's going moment on, bro? of okay. the... Oh, Ter- yeah, live, live reporting from San Francisco. San Francisco. I don't know about Go. I think he overstated the case a little bit. But, yeah, there's a, it is a shock when you see San Francisco like this. No, no question. You know, there's a big conference going on. That's why I bet you he's in town. Ah, what kind of conference? Some kind of Asian economic conference, APEC. Not APEC for Israel, but APEC, which is like the A, let me see, APEC. I think it's some sort of Asian economic conference. Let's see. But how prevalent? Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation. So what's that? How prevalent are these bad, you know, feces smells on the streets of San Francisco? Uh, They're prevalent within a very generally confined part of town, which I no doubt is where all the hotels are, which is no doubt where Frame Games is staying. So it's, yes, if Frame Games is where I believe he is, he's going to encounter that. And it's totally disgusting. And it is as he uh, depicts it. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's like, Downtown is like the Gaza Strip. It's a very small section of the Mideast, you know. Once you get outside of the Gaza Strip, uh, you know, things are relatively nice. Okay, so so it's it's downtown that it's downtown, he's talking yes. about. Okay. And this has traditionally always been, it's a magnet for panhandlers, right? Because there's so many hotels and generally speaking, prosperous tourists. So this attracts panhandlers, panhandlers. Uh, attract or a part of the sort of greater drug using community. And there's also things called single room occupancy. Um, sort of like hotels, there's sort of single room hotels. And you can live there uh, if you're on some sort of government assistance. So it just sort of concentrates all of the um, degeneracy into one intense disgusting pocket. So, um, you know, I go for weeks on end without seeing any uh, feces on the streets. Uh, what, what streets? What streets are we talking about? Because I've been in San Francisco on and off from 1977 to 2007, and I don't remember feces about. So, uh, so Hyde, so this is all within the same zone. So certain blocks of Hyde, O'Farrell, Jones, um, Larkin, Polk, um, Powell, um, and about, you know, so anywhere in about, uh, I would say like a 16, 20 block radius of, of Powell and Market. But where, where are the, the big touristy spots? Because like you're a deli and... No, those are over the hill. That's on the bay side. So okay. uh, this is, um, so there's a giant hill, like uh, Knob Hill. It's very steep. The cable car goes up it. It's very scenic. You know, people snap their pictures and so forth. Then on the other side of that, it's, um, you know, the Marina, uh, Russian Hill, Cow Hollow. These are all sort of high-end neighborhoods. And uh, they've been more or less chased out. So, um <clears throat> Who's being chased out? The the uh, the the fentanyl crowd. Okay. You know. Discriminatory, man. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. 
how they go for it. And the problem is, and also, and this is sort of, I get into a lot of fights about this, but there's the Glide Memorial Church, which is uh, funded by Warren Buffett, and it's a massive soup kitchen operation. And so every day at noon, like a line will span for three or four blocks of homeless people lining up to get free meals or free lunch. And, you know, everybody sort of pats themselves on the back and um, about this, but it sort of contributes to the perception that, you know, if you're down and out, San Francisco will take care of you. And so um, this has, you know, they fed the rats and surprisingly, there are just more rats. Disavow, God forbid. What's the quality of the food like? Have you ever dined there? <laughs> I wouldn't dream of it. No, I wouldn't dream of it. I'd imagine it's pretty middling to poor. Hey, when you were at the Palestinian protest, were there a lot of hot, attractive women? No, no, there weren't. There were uh, quite the opposite. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the traditional, you know, usual leftists, kind of, you know, pan, pan leftist coalition of, LGBTQ and, you know, this rights, that's rights, Palestinian rights, <coughs> um, Marxists of all various stripes, anarchists. It's, it's just the usual gaggle. <coughs> but I have to say there was a more middle class contingent among the Palestinian advocates. Noteworthy by their uh, carrying of that disgusting flag that just... Uh, aesthetic atrocity that is the Palestinian flag. Sorry, bro, I'm a little, I'm a little, not feeling that charitable this morning, you know what I'm saying? Alora hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, Patuan, uh, Mama JF, any thoughts on this woman? Yes, I do. And I don't think JF killed her. And I think there's a probably 50% chance that she's still alive and that she is in some drug den somewhere, whacked on fentanyl. But but do we have no, have you ever seen any evidence that she's a drug user, abuser? I don't recall that. I, I, I don't, though. She does have sort of a hippie past, but I, I don't think she's, a, I think she's very open to new experience. And I think if someone presented her with uh, a drug, I think she might try it. And the problem with this fentanyl stuff is supposedly it's incredibly addictive and you do hear tales, and I've heard tales of, you know, women with kids just leaving their lives and just turning tricks to get a hit of fentanyl. So I, I, the magnitude, I know it's very intense in San Francisco, but I think the magnitude of this fentanyl problem uh, really can't be overstated. And do, do JF's reactions to essentially his common law wife's disappearance strike you as uh, normal? They're definitely, they're definitely a little bit odd. <clears throat> However, I'd say um, I don't think he liked her at all. I think he's just everything about her, I think just rubbed him the wrong way. Like he's probably a neat freak and she's probably a slob. Um, and I could totally believe it. Or not, I could totally empathize is wanting to clean the apartment after having a slob just destroy it for months on end. So I don't actually see that as suspicious. I think that would be my first priority if I could just, you know, if I got rid of a slob out of my life. And and the flower garden, I mean, once a slob leaves, you 
want to build a flower garden as well. <laughs> now, I'd like to see the timeline on this. That is interesting. I have to say that is an interesting dimension. <laughs> and I just learned of this today. So is it literally the next day or are we talking like a month or two later? No, the, the, right around then. Same time. Um, so you think he composted her? No, I, God forbid, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making any <laughs> I mean, that's the implication, isn't it? That's what we're sort of implying, aren't we? No, I, I'm saying that it, it's like cleansing the soul when you you you, you part from someone. I, I don't know about you, but I immediately build a flower garden. You know, it's flowers. You probably wrote some poetry. You know, I know that feeling after after like a, a fight. But I think both of these critics of JF are being a little bit irresponsible. And they could be actually, and I'm obviously not a lawyer, but they seem to be dancing on the margins of a potential libel suit, don't you think? Uh, could, could JF, let, let's just... He he doesn't have a, a sparkling reputation. I mean, three, you know, messy divorces in his past. Do you, do you think that he could ever win a libel suit? Well, I think they're really strongly implying it's okay to be a freak. It's not against the law to be a freak, to be a weirdo, to be a narcissist, to be just off kilter, right? Mm -hmm. What they're really saying without saying is that he did her in, you know? And I don't know. It just seems like, uh, I would never do that online. I, uh, in the public, it just seems like you're inviting problems. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's unethical. Don't you think you have no one of these people have any evidence. They just have a guy that they hate probably for political reasons. And so they're reading into his strange behavior. I mean, slightly odd, eccentric behavior and his politics, which they probably hate. So it's just, he's too juicy of a target for them. And therefore they're uh, getting out over their skis as the saying goes. Why, why do you think people are so eager to attack JF's heterosexuality? Uh, who did this? Who's, I don't really hear that that often. Uh, JF complained about people attacking his heterosexuality and claiming that he's an incel. And uh, I mean, this guy has so many demands for his essence. Yes. Um, and he's denied people. On and he's station. denying people his essence. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a bit selfish, I have to say. I, I, I don't know. People say people make a lot of they accuse, people accuse everybody of being gay and they accuse everybody of being pedophiles. This is part of the uh, culture of the internet. I don't think Jeff may be many things. I don't think he's gay. And um, I don't know where this comes from because he doesn't really give off gay vibes to me. But he does give off strange vibes. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a <sighs> unique, uh, unique individual. <laughs> he is. Yes. Congratulations. So you don't like my fentanyl theory, huh? I, I'd need I need evidence. No, I, I don't I don't buy that. It, I just think it's really strange for a woman to want to go disappear and go be a survivalist and totally drop off the grid, particularly a woman with children. Well, I think it's strange for a woman to ride a bicycle, you know, in a, in a public place, buck naked. She's she, we're not talking about an ordinary person here. We're talking about a very 
unordinary person. Special. Special. Yeah. She's known for her very erratic behaviors and outbursts on microphone. We know this, right? Yeah. Remember oh. her and No White Goat? <laughs> yes. Her and no yeah. White Goat. yeah. We're talking about, you know, somebody truly on the margins. And this is yet another marginal event <laughs> that might be a terminal event. So, but I can honestly say he probably hated, here's how, all right, this is thorough conjecture, my opinion. He probably was growingly more and more annoyed with her because of her slovenliness and her wasting of energy and all the other neurotic tics that I'm sure she had. And they were just a bad match. And so they were probably fighting a lot and she decided to, well, I'm out of here. You know, I'm going to either, either she was literally running away or just doing some sort of theatrical pr presentation about running away and, you know, seeming to go through with it. But I, I think she in turn probably hated him after all of the abuse that she, he had uh, heaped on her, you know, because of the arguments around, you know, the cleanliness and the heat and the wastefulness and all that stuff. So he, she probably had some uh, resentment against, um, him and she was acting out in this way. And then, like you say, when you, once you get in a fight, you can't predict every event, right? Once you sort of loose the dogs of war, who knows what's going to happen? So, you know, you, you go into Israel with your band of uh, brigands and next thing you know, your homeland's flattened, you know, just who knows what happens. The one thing leads to another, bro. You think that he might uh, team up with OJ Simpson and go looking for the real killers? <laughs> He doesn't give off guilty vibes. OJ give off massive guilty vibes. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. I mean, I think uh, JF, given the circumstances, has been pretty good humored about this. And uh, I know, I don't see, I don't think the, the fact that he didn't go public with this um, necessarily implies any guilt on his part because. You know how the internet is. Do you want this nut layer of drama sort of overlaying your attempt at producing a live stream that is how you make your money? I assume that's how he makes his money is his live stream. Do you want, you know, I could see one to keep that secret and I could see thinking, you know, well, maybe she'll be back tomorrow. Well, maybe she'll be back tomorrow. Maybe she'll be back tomorrow. You know, one day leads to another, you know, eventually she, it wasn't clear to her on clear to him on day two that she wasn't coming back right she just thought it would be a day or two or three and then you know you just sort of postpone talking about it and then when you think maybe you should talk about it it's like well where's the upside what is the upside of me talking about this publicly and i don't see much i i think it also speaks in his favor that her family has not made public appeals i mean if this was my sister or niece or auntie or someone my girlfriend, I'd be making public appeals. Mm. I mean, if, if, yeah. if can, I, I don't know if they have or have about caring about someone and then that person goes missing, you're able to like imagine that situation. Would you not want to make public appeals? Well, I think he hates her. I actually think he hates her guts. I think he's been driven crazy by her and is not really upset that she's gone. She's upset that he's a suspect in her disappearance. But the fact that she's gone is probably a relief to him. I think he, see, he sees it as uh, liberating. So I don't think the public appeal, the lack of public appeal 
indicates his guilt. They're two different things. Right, but it's interesting. Her family hasn't made a a public appeal. I mean, if that was my sister or niece or auntie or someone close to me, I'd be engaged in making public appeals. It's interesting. It's telling that her family hasn't gone public with their concerns. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, the apple doesn't necessarily fall far from the tree. We, We may not be dealing with stable people or just conventionally thinking people. Uh, but yeah, I could. I agree with you. Yes, it is. It is strange that her family has not made it public. Now, more than anyone I know, you've you've had a history of dating uh, uh, mentally special women. Um, can you talk about the the advantages and the disadvantages of uh, dating someone who's not neurotypical? There's no advantage whatsoever. <laughs> no advantage at all. <laughs> well, there's ne- there's two different types of mental disability. There's intelligence, but emotionally unbalanced, and then there's, you know, the real the real problem is the emotional unregulatedness, the emotional problems that a woman can bring to a relationship, because that is the seed of just outrageous. Uh, life-changing, chaos-inducing behaviors that could really wrap your life up into a lot of chaos. So it has nothing to do with uh, intelligence and the the ability to uh, solve math problems, right? It's the ability to regulate one's emotions, which is the key driver. I I found out a long time ago what a woman can do to your soul, but she can't take you any way you don't already know how to go. Well, like I said, if you want a peaceful, easy feeling, you know, you got to play your cards very, very strategically. Now, do you think that uh, Israel and uh, its its attacks on Hamas, sectioning off northern Gaza and, uh, you know, going after Hamas tunnels, do you think they're operating with the right strategy, using the correct tactics? Or how would General Blatt go about uh, disabling Hamas? General Blatt has no idea whatsoever. General Blatt does not opine on things about which he does not know anything about. Really? When did this happen? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't give military advice to people. I don't like. It's like evaluating a chess position of a board that I haven't seen. So why would I? I don't think there's any easy way to do this. And frankly, I don't care. <laughs> I'm tired of these people, and you know, they have. Uh, it just exhausted my patience, and I'm just I'm mute to their suffering. I'm sorry, bro. These people that's very othering language, bro. People, people live in tribes at the end of the day, bro. <laughs> Let's put it this way you know, I don't see any sort of reciprocal concern on the part of Palestinians about the suffering of Israelis. And so you're asking me to say in a way that I am morally superior to them because I don't extend the generosity, right? The generosity of spirit because, but they themselves do extend the generosity of spirit. It's not true. Speaking of which, I want to talk about your boy, Matt. Yes. History speaks. Yeah. Please go ahead. 
All right, so I subscribed. I, I subscribed to his Twitter. Uh, you know, shortly after your conversation with him last week, and it's like 10, 20 tweets a day, just carrying on about Israel did this, and you know, you know, Americans don't know this and that, and just one thing after another. He seems to be absolutely hysterical, and has no sense of the objectivity that um you know he claimed that he had in Kaufness lacked i think the opposite i you know i i just i don't realize if, if he's just taking leave of his senses or so emotional that he does not he doesn't seem to be aware of what he's putting out there are you subscribed yeah. to his twitter I, I I follow his his Twitter. I don't subscribe. I mean, I don't spend any money, but I, I follow his Twitter. Oh, that's and, what I that's what I mean. You you yeah. you follow see. But so you you must notice how often he tweets. Yes, right? yes. I I don't think that's serving him. Yeah, you know, I've thrown in a commenter here, but then again, I, I'm basically you know uh, uh, just reevaluating. Uh, the time I spend trying to engage or just inject my opinion into an ongoing conversation because I, I, I don't see it leading anywhere as much as I enjoy it and much as I enjoy reading it, me actually getting involved with it just, just leads to exhaustion on my part and emotional fatigue. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I don't think people should uh, you know, engage on, on social media, except for you know, rare circumstances of, Usually not not good for you. Yeah. There's no point arguing with people. Uh, have you been keeping up with uh, Kino Casino or Ethan Ralph or any other online drama? Uh, no, no. You know, I tried watching a little Kino Casino. It was, it was all about these characters who I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's going on with Ralph. He seems to have calmed down quite a bit. And uh, his life seemed to be in tatters. And maybe he's trying. To, he does seem to have. Uh, come to some sobering conclusions, I would say. And, but I, I just, it's not, it's not nearly as entertaining as it used to be. It's sad thing is, it's like, yeah, yeah. somebody quietly putting their life back together isn't that, uh, you know, compelling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I don't know. I just, you know, I, I just have to think more about the toxicity of the waters that I've been swimming in and maybe, you know, stay dry here and there. Yeah. I, hey, look, I, I am working today. I, I wish I okay, can't bro. go too much longer, but uh, if there's any final question, I, I'm going to have to jump. Uh, yeah. Any, anything good that you've been listening to online? Um, I've already talked about Patrick Boyle. Um, I'm in the knee. I need new stuff. Uh, short answer. I've been listening to a lot of Twitter spaces. Uh, um, with varying degrees of success. Uh, there's, there's some pretty nice moments in some of these spaces, but there's lots of, uh, uh, lots of tarred time, shall we say. So short answer, no, but I, I like where Twitter spaces is going. It might be the new YouTube over time. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, bro. Thanks for coming uh, by. All right. So, all right. Bye. Okay. Talk to you later. All right. Here are a couple of lefties talking about, uh, why people are basically good. Cut off is where I think a lot of the interesting questions about how to become more more self-aware are. Because there's this critical moment immediately around the time that self-consciousness kicks into a person's system, where they become self-critical, 
overly punishing about the nature of the thing, as opposed to being able to accept it fully and address it in whatever healthy way exists for a person to address something. So what does the person do to limit the pain that's associated with the self-criticism or self-consciousness? And that gets to a lot of the defenses and repression and so on that we were talking about a little bit earlier. And that makes a lot of sense when somebody's dealing with a more painful or a big air quotes negative tendency that they might have. But it's a little bit less obvious when, to your point, Dad, we're talking about positive tendencies that we're pushing down for whatever reason. What do you think causes people to repress the positive aspects of their nature? Wow, that's so good. Well, a couple of things here. I want to restate the key thing you said and just Great. highlight yeah. it, which is for all kinds of reasons, often because of messages we got growing up or what our culture says today, we feel like there are parts of ourselves, including feelings, let's say, or vulnerabilities in us that are best pushed down into the basement and locked away. And then once they're locked away, we have less and less awareness of them. We forget that it was we who put them there and had the key, right? That's definitely one thing that's true. And a lot of the healing journey is to come to terms with what we've pushed away and in a way that's tolerable, uh, become more willing to experience it. In other words, we've pushed it out of the field of conscious experiencing and to heal, we need to uh, experience it out. We need to let it flow uh, through us while being experienced usually in a very accelerated kind of way on, on the way out the door. Okay, that's definitely a major source of uh, lack of self-knowledge. Another major source though, is just being busy, being numb, being preoccupied with other things. You know, if your focus is intensively on verbally saturated task doing, you're just gonna not be so aware of your nonverbal, somatic, imagistic aspects of yourself because you're just distracted. You're over here with that. And that is actually a major, major source of lack of self-awareness. And the other is just people who are not very mindful. They don't have very good, um, you know, just real-time granularity of, of self-awareness. The other thing that happens, I think, that's very real for people is that they are identified with habitual ways of, of seeing, thinking, mm -hmm. and doing. And totally. yeah, William James described us, well, he said, most people are bundles of habits. And when mm. we're in the habit, it's almost trance-like. We're caught up in the trance. We don't really notice it. And it's only when we actually get a little distance from it that we begin to recognize what's actually happening there. And that's another major reason why people lack self-awareness. It's not so much a deliberate repression or disowning of some aspect of themselves. They're just caught up in a habit, a way of being and thinking. Uh, so these are more maybe normalizing and less dramatic, but significant ways of talking about. Uh, okay, I thought that was a, a pretty good uh, modern secular lefty articulation of why they might see uh, human nature is, is basically good. Right. Uh, for many of my peers, their favorite Israel commentator is Yossi Klein Levy. 
former supporter of uh, Mayor Kahana, who's now moved towards a more centrist position. He was interviewed a few hours ago on Ezra Klein's podcast. So this episode is recorded by Pulse. From New York Times opinion, this Rocky, the Palestinian, right? Narratives are contradictory. Narratives that even oppose each other will have to be held at the same time. That reconciliation, if it ever comes, is not going to come because one story gets judged true and the other false. But because both stories and the many more. Security has written a book on the Israeli military. It is forward. important to under being a soldier patrolling Gaza when you... And my unit served in the Gaza refugee camps. We also served in the West Bank. And I came out of that experience learning two things. The first is that the rule over another people is untenable in the long term for a country that wants to this be both episode a is supported and maintain its Jewish majority. And that was a lesson that I learned viscerally. I learned it every day. And it was an overwhelming experience. The second experience was a direct encounter with the depth, not only of Palestinian rage, and in many cases, hatred, but with the negation of any legitimacy to Jewish state in, in any borders. Just before our unit had gotten to Gaza, an Israeli reservist driving through through Gaza had made a wrong turn and ended up in a refugee camp and was surrounded and burned alive. And we used to get taunted every day uh, that uh, Amnon, who was, that was his name, Amnon, Amnon sends you regards. So my education was the futility of occupation on the one hand, and on the other, deep questions about whether we could really negotiate a two-state solution with the Palestinian national movement that would be ready to accept the legitimacy of Israel in whatever borders. And that education has shaped my thinking to this day in the way that I would put it, Ezra, is that on the one hand, I believe that a Palestinian state is an existential need for Israel. And I also believe it's an existential threat, especially given what we've just experienced on October 7th, the, the possibility of taking the risk of withdrawing from the West Bank anytime soon and bringing Hamas to within literally five minutes of Tel Aviv is simply inconceivable for Israelis today, I would say virtually across the political spectrum. But the one thing that I will say, just to counter that a little bit, is that I've learned in Israel really never to make definitive statements about the future, even the near future, because uh, it's so unpredictable. This is such a radically fluid reality. A month ago, I was standing in the streets literally every week with hundreds of thousands of Israelis demonstrating against the Netanyahu government. Today, this is suddenly the most unified country that we've been for decades. And we keep going from one contradictory reality to the next. And that's so built into the Israeli experience. So why many of us like uh, Yossi Klein Halevi is that he seems to be pretty fair towards both the left and the right, the various sides of the Israeli political spectrum. And in a paradoxical way, that gives me some hope for the future, because those who say a two-state solution is over, it's dead, it's finished. So how do you know? Look at what just happened in Israel in the last five weeks. How can you make any definitive statement about this crazy place? You'd mentioned the first intifada. And I want to talk about how both intifadas changed Israeli politics. And so beginning with what, as you put it, nobody knew was the first one at the time. What was the first intifada? 
And how did Israel react to it? How did it change Israeli politics? I, I can't believe I, I'm playing Ezra Klein. I used to just think he's just another liberal hack, but he's consistently become more interesting and uh, more open to centrist and conservative points of view over the last few years. Well, the first Intifada broke out in uh, 1987, and it lasted more or less until the first Gulf War, 1991. It was um, basically riots. It was young people, large, very large numbers, hundreds, thousands of young people, throwing stones, sometimes Molotov cocktails, every so often a terror attack. But primarily, it was the Palestinians call it the Intifada of Stones. And that's how I personally experienced it. I, I, I got a stone thrown to my head, and I was briefly hospitalized for that. Luckily, I, I had a helmet on, and I still blacked out. And... I don't blame anyone who has rocks thrown at him who would respond with you know, shooting a gun, right? Uh, having rocks thrown at you is very much a, a threat to your life. Just like if someone pulls a knife on you and they're 20 feet away, it'll take them a second to, to get to you, right? If I were a police officer or a soldier and my enemy had a knife or a rock, I, I would regard it as a deadly threat. There was something visceral about experiencing a rock in your head because rock is a symbol of powerlessness. I mean, David and Goliath. And it was this encounter with Gaza's rage. And I also had a very complicated experience. I came to respect these Palestinian teenagers who were throwing rocks at my friends and me. We were armed. And there was a great deal of courage, and I recognized myself as a teenager in their rage. I was a, uh, a very strong participant in Jewish activism when I was a teenager in the late 60s, early 70s, in the Soviet Jewry movement, in the violent wing of the Soviet Jewry movement, fighting police at the Soviet mission. And I, I, I identified to some extent with these kids, and I felt this grudging respect for them. And so it was a very complicated dynamic. And I came out of that experience saying, there's no way to suppress this. We're going to have to come to terms. All right, uh, breaking news. The website Jezebel has shut down. This is a safe place for you to share your feelings. Michael Tracy says, uh, devastated. Jezebel took a chance on me and believed in me when no one else would. Without them, I would never have cultivated my distinct, sassy, blogging voice, obnoxious self-importance or deep respect for the plight of online media women. How are you handling your grief about the shutdown of the feminist website Jezebel? Terms ...with Palestinian nationalism. And this was true for a very large number of Israelis. I saw it happening in the army. And every night we would have arguments in our tent camp in Gaza. And you saw even people on the right saying, something has to give here. This isn't working. And the political consequence of the first intifada was the election of Yitzhak Rabin in 1992. Rabin ran on the slogan, take Gaza out of Tel Aviv. That was the winning post-intifada slogan of Israeli politics. Separation. Let Whatever they wanted to do, a state, give them a state. There was something of that mood in Israeli society, a, a realization that we can't swallow another people. 
uh, a people that doesn't want to be part of us and whom we don't see as part of the identity we were trying to create in Israel. So it was a moment of possibility. A year later, the Oslo peace process, and that again, a direct outgrowth of the First Intifada. Technically, Israel won the First Intifada. We suppressed the riots. It took four or five years, but the riots stopped. But we lost, and we all knew we lost the First Intifada because you can't win that kind of conflict. And the 90s, at least the early 90s, was the time where people like me who had experienced the Intifada literally in our being felt we needed to try a different way. So then let me ask the same question of the the second Intifada. What was it? What were the, the tactics of it? And how did it change Israeli politics and society? So the second Intifada broke out in the year 2000, September 2000. And the second Intifada was the Intifada of suicide bombings. And that went on for five years. Those were the longest five years of my life. And I was raising two teenagers in Jerusalem at the time. Jerusalem was one of the main center points of the suicide bombings. And my kids had numerous close encounters and they both lost friends. Friends were wounded. That Intifada changed Israeli politics in the opposite way of the first Intifada. It brought the right to power pretty much permanently over the last 20 plus years. And it wasn't only the intensity of the terrorism. It was the fact that it happened after Israel had said yes to two peace offers. Now, the Palestinians have a very different version of what I'm about to tell you. I'm going to give you the Israeli narrative of what happened. Almost all Israelis deeply believe this, uh, as do I. Let me just uh, fast forward here. We're salvaging our credibility as a country able to defend itself. And that really will have long-term consequences. I want to hold on the the pre-October 7th equilibrium for for one more question before. Let's fast forward. Sierra, thanks to the support. Come on. In this land, no Palestinian leader that I know has said that. The second is the practical application. Okay. Let me get the timestamp right here. Here. Two things. The first is an acceptance of the indigenousness of the Jewish people in this land. No Palestinian leader that I know has said that. The second is the practical application of acceptance of a Jewish majority state, which is not to make a peace agreement contingent on Israel accepting vast numbers of the descendants of refugees back into the 1967 state, which would destroy the Jewish majority. In other words, from the perspective of an overwhelming majority of Israeli Jews, the key is the legitimacy of a Jewish majority state. Now, you mentioned BDS. You mentioned the March of Return. The BDS movement is committed to what Palestinians call the right of return. The March of Return was literally that. We are going to inundate Israel with the descendants of Palestinian refugees. BDS and the March of Return were both we can say technically peaceful. BDS was peaceful. March of Return was accompanied by a great deal of violence. But the March of Return and BDS have as their goal the destruction of Israel. Now, I don't care if you destroy Israel through October 7th or through a March of Return. 
because in the end, the result will be the unbearable vulnerability of Israeli Jews, who will no longer be able to defend themselves. And in that sense, there's no difference between that and the goal of October 7th. There's a- okay, let's get a brief hit here from Douglas Murray talking to... Concerns me about what Israel is doing. It's not their Here's efforts Morgan. to get rid of Hamas. But the, because of the particular nature of Hamas embedding themselves amongst civilian populations with the massive amounts of civilian casualties that will inevitably come, and that figure will grow and grow and grow. Are we not, as Barack Obama warned, are we not creating here uh, just an, an opportunity for far greater radicalization of all those young Palestinians who watched their loved ones get killed why would we imagine that at the end of all this, they're going to want to do anything other than to become a new version of Hamas in wanting to exact revenge well, for what happened to their families? Well, two things. One is, if you just follow the logic of what Barack Obama said, then you just shouldn't do anything uh, if you're Israel. You should be attacked and just sit back and say, great, we'll wait for the next one. Um, but the second and more important thing is, your question supposes that there is a sort of peaceful Palestinian population in the Gaza who would love a two-state solution, and then a few bad apples in Hamas. I think that's not true. Why is it that when uh, one of the victims of the music festival uh, a poor young German Jewish girl uh, who it seems was was raped and then uh, brutally uh, murdered and taken into the Gaza naked. Why was it that you can find, and anyone can find this online, uh, a crowd of ordinary Gazans, it wasn't uh, Hamas, it wasn't a Hamas rally, ordinary Gazans uh, uh, spitting on her body, uh, hitting her body, mutilating her body further as it went down the street. Does that strike you, Piers, as a uh, placid population of peacenik types who are just desperately waiting for a two-state solution to be put back on the table for the millionth time in the last 70-something years? It doesn't seem like that to me. No, but there are over two million people in Gaza, and there weren't two million people in that video clip. There were a few hundred. So I, I don't like to make... Yeah, well, a few hundred at random. A few hundred at random. And did you see anyone in it saying, hey, guys, stop, we're not meant to mutilate the bodies of, uh, of girls or rape them in public? No, I didn't see that. But, but then what you're really articulating, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't what you're articulating really an endorsement of collective punishment, where you assume they're all guilty. No. And if they don't stand up to Hamas, they're also guilty. Well, and, and that's where people have a problem, I think, well, with the moral line here, which is no, if, you hold, if you hold all the Gazans equally responsible, then is that not collective punishment, which is illegal? Well, f- first of all... First of all, um, uh, there, are, there is some responsibility for people in the Gaza. Um, if you elect, elect Hamas and, uh, and they kill uh, Fatah and then they remain in power for all of the years afterwards, um, I'm afraid that there is some uh, responsibility of the people in that situation. You know, when the Germans uh, um, had Adolf Hitler come to power and voted for him, uh, we in Britain took the view that the German people were responsible in some way. So I'm not for collective punishment per se, but nor am I for this idea that there is something unique going on in the Israeli-Gaza context that we in Britain couldn't understand. Actually, there is one we unique in thing. in our own history there is, there is very one similar un- things. But there is one unique thing, which is that the population of Gaza is pretty unique in that nearly half of the population are children. 
That is a unique situation. No, I'll tell you what's unique about the population of Gaza. It's the only population in the world where people routinely claim Israelis are committing genocide, but which has a population boom all of the time. I mean, th that strikes me as being quite an interesting thing about the Gaza. Um, but as for, as for the moral community, I want to make a very, very important point, if I can say so, on this, which is, you know, uh, people quite often abuse history, and they say things all the time. I mean, about the only thing anyone from history knows is about the Nazis. Here's something I can tell you with absolute certainty, uh, Piers, having not just seen some of the results of what Hamas did on the ground here in Israel a few weeks ago, but having watched the videos of the unedited footage, uh, which I was one of the journalists um, was sadly allowed to see the other day. I can tell you one thing. The comparison between Hamas and the Nazis is insufficient. And I... Sorry, there's an incoming... Uh, incoming. Get safe, Douglas. Come, come, come. Okay, anyhow, we're okay. Are you okay? Um, let's, let's just... Yeah, 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 it's fine. Sorry, it was, it, was a, it was a rocket coming. It looked like it was just going to land on us here. Which, which way okay. was that rocket coming from? Okay. Was it coming from Gaza or from Israel? Yes, it seemed to be coming from Gaza, so... Yeah, it's fine. It's okay, it's been happening all day. Um... Let me just, I mean, just, just, point just me. before we go on, um, Douglas, Atman, how does that make sure. you? How does that make you feel? What just happened there? I mean, it's uh, I'm, I'm a little used to it. I was in Ukraine last year and was in Kherson and uh, uh, Odessa and uh, Mykolaiv and when the Russians were shelling it, so I'm a little used to it. Um, uh, but just if I can just finish this point, you know, this. So there's a lot of banging going on, but anyway, we'll keep going. Um, well, look, if you the, need to, if you need to stop, Douglas, we understand. The, no, no, don't worry. If we need to stop, I'll, I'll, I'll run to the shelter, I assure you. Um, the, the thing that stri struck me, you know, Piers, about seeing the 7th of October footage was that um, uh, even the Nazis were actually ashamed of what they did. You know, SS battalions who spent their days shooting Jews in the back of the head and pushing them into, tr uh, into trenches had to get very, very drunk in the evening to uh, uh, forget what they had done. Uh, the Nazi high command famously had to sort of get around the problem of soldier morale because the soldiers knew this wasn't exactly what their lives were meant to look like either. I tell you one very big difference. If you look at the footage, the raw footage, and I really hope people don't on a wider scale have to view what I viewed the other day, um, if they see it, they will see something that is at least as barbaric as what the Nazis did. But here's the difference. They did it with glee. They were deeply proud. You see people um, uh, trying to, you know, taking the head off a young Israeli man with a shovel and then uh, calling their parents back in Gaza and telling them, Father, Father, I've killed two Jews with my, t ten Jews with my own hands. Get mother on the phone. I want to show, tell her how great a job her son has done. You know, I, I come back to this thing. I'm not exaggerating this. It's very, very interesting, and people need to realize. You had this situation with, uh, with the Nazis, where they also were a genocidal anti-Semitic organization, but they tried to cover their crimes up. Hamas are actually proud of them, mm. and they've said they will do them until the whole world is clear well, that, that's a pretty common difference that you can see in America, that uh, low IQ people are often you know, quite eager to publicize the horrible things that they're doing. 
higher IQ people will try to hide what they're doing. All right, back to Yossi Klein-Halevi, Israeli commentator. The difference in tactic. But what I'm looking for is not a change in tactic. I'm looking for a change in goal. Are you still committed to the destruction of a Jewish state through peaceful means? Thank you very much. That's, that's a non-starter for me. You are trying to destroy the last best hope of the Jewish people. And I don't care if it's technically anti-Semitic or not. I actually don't care if the motive is anti-Semitic. The intent here doesn't matter. The consequence will be the effective destruction of the Jewish people. We will not survive as a people without the state of Israel. In your heart of hearts, how do you think the average Palestinian sees you and sees Israel? At your most honest, what do you think they really think of you? I would say that until October 7th, and I'll explain why in a moment, your average Palestinian thought two things about Israel. One is it has no legitimacy. It is a country that's based on theft and lies. There was no ancient Jewish presence in this land. It's all of Zion Smith. The Holocaust is probably either an exaggeration or an outright lie. And that's what Palestinian society hears routinely from its media, from its leaders. And on the other hand, I sense that the average Palestinian had a certain admiration for Israel, an admiration for Israel's success, for the fact that we've proven that we're ready to sacrifice ourselves for this country. The deep love and attachment that we have, in a way, proves that we're an indigenous people. Okay, that's uh, kind of a pointless argument. Generations. Is that... A 1,000 Israeli civilians, there were 1,400 killed altogether, about 400 were soldiers, but a 1,000 Israeli civilians died with their hands bound behind their backs in the most horrific ways that Jews have ever been murdered. And it happened within the borders of a sovereign Jewish state with the Israeli army seemingly incapacitated for hours. That is a historic... It's not just... Well, the IDF took between seven and nine hours in most cases to show up. Just unbelievable levels of Israeli incompetence in response to these Hamas attacks. It's a failure. It's a collapse of the Israeli ethos. It's a collapse of our most basic sense of ourselves, of what this country is about. And that's also what we're fighting for today. And a lot of well-intentioned people who tell us ceasefire and don't understand what's at stake here for Israel. I think there's a big question mark all over the Arab and Muslim worlds about whether Israel is really viable in the long term. The defeat, the humiliation of October 7th was so profound. The fact that we were beaten by the weakest of our enemies, which is how we always related to Hamas. Hamas is the Right. If Israel is not viable uh, on the long term, then Israel's enemies including the Arab and Islamic states around it, have pure incentives to make a peace deal. The least of our problems. We've got Hezbollah, we've got Iranian Revolutionary Guards in Syria, and Iran, of course, hovering in the background. And to be defeated so totally by Hamas means that we don't have deterrence anymore. And that... That, That's a, a great point. I mean, out of all of Israel's enemies... Uh, Hamas was thought to be the least competent. And then Hamas turned around and slaughtered 1,400 Israelis 
with the IDF taking seven to nine hours in most cases to respond. By the way, is what this war is about, most of all for Israel. And we all know it here. This is the war to restore the credibility of Israeli deterrence. I want to quote something you said on that because I found it very important. You said, in recent days, I've received messages from friends abroad warning me that Israel is about to repeat the mistakes America made in Afghanistan and Iraq. You're walking into a trap, they say. There is no quick fix. Hamas is an idea, not just a movement. And you go on to say that, I fear they may be right, but those concerns are irrelevant to Israel's most urgent need, which is the immediate restoration of our shattered deterrence. What is deterrence? And what is the way in which what Israel is now doing, its current strategy, restores deterrence? So I think there are... Right. So what do you think the average IQ was of those hundreds of Palestinians abusing the body of that uh, dead Israeli woman, German-Israeli woman? I'd suspect that their average IQ wouldn't be higher than 85. Two aspects. There's an external deterrence toward the enemies on our borders. And there's an internal reassurance to Israeli citizens that we're still capable of protecting ourselves. It's funny, as I was just talking there, I felt myself tighten and, and stiffen up. And every time I start the show, when I click, you know, live, start, start streaming, well, first of all, I hit the music, and then I try to hit start streaming as quickly as possible. But I, I always tense up. It, it's like I experience like a, a mini stroke. I'm just so tense, and when I when I start the show, and it's funny because prior to pressing stream live, I have all these ideas. Like my world just feels so big and expansive. There are so many things that I want to tackle and explore. And then as I tighten up, unfortunately, in the neck and around the shoulders and the, the face and the head, as I tighten up to hit the music and then hit start streaming, like then suddenly my world just shrinks down like this. And, and then I, I notice as I go through the show, uh, you know, hitting this or that, you know, just the, the tendency to tighten. And then it constricts my thinking, my feeling, you know, my emotions, you know, how, how I hold myself. And so with every stimulus, all right, there's always a strong incentive to tighten, compress, pull down, which then narrows your thinking, narrows your emotional range. Uh, the, the worst is when... Occasionally, this has happened. I press the music and then start live, and then you know my whole computer just freezes. I, I still haven't gotten over the, the trauma of that. It, it's kind of a nightmare. Every time I start the show, there's a little voice in me that you know expects my computer to freeze. In some ways, the internal deterrence is more important. If we stop believing that this country can fulfill its historic role of being a safe refuge for the Jewish people. Many Israelis will leave. You know, Israelis, like Jews all around the world, have a very healthy personal sense of survival. We don't only have a collective sense <laughs> of survival here. We also know, you know, it might be time to leave. Jews in France have that sense. And anti-Semitism is now rising phenomenally in Europe, especially in France and, and England. And until October 7th, many French Jews, in response to what's happening there, would have immediately applied for immigration to Israel. I don't know if that's going to happen now. And so the long-term consequences of October 7th are core to what this country is about. And in terms of the external deterrence, I think that our enemies need to know that 
were not afraid to die in war. And there's this sense, and you hear it from Hamas, you hear it from Hezbollah, you hear it from uh, the... Wait, wouldn't supporters of Hamas say the same thing? It's important that our enemies know that we're not afraid to die in war. I mean, isn't that a standard line of Arab or Islamic terrorists? Iranian regime that uh, Muslims don't fear death, we embrace death. We're fearless. The Jews are cowards. They cling to life. And yes, the Jews certainly cling to life. And that's, I think, uh, one of the most uh, beautiful aspects of, of Judaism. But there are moments where you're ready to sacrifice your life. And this is one of those defining moments. I have a couple of questions about that. So, so one, what makes you think, or what makes Israelis think, that Hamas or Israel's enemies in the region had ceased to believe that about Israel? I mean, the one thing that I feel like everybody said universally as soon as this happened was that, of course, this would create an overwhelming Israeli response, that there would be a huge, huge, huge attack on Gaza, that that was part of the, the calculus of the conflict in a way. Well, Israel hasn't won a war since 1973. And every war since was an asymmetrical conflict. And you can't win an asymmetrical war unless you're ready to go all the way. And Israel was not ready to go all the way. It is now. But our track record of the last... Uh, so playing an interesting video here where customers upset that an Apple store employee is wearing a Palestinian flag. Uh, if, if Jewish employees can wear a yarmulke, why should Apple employees not get to wear a Palestinian flag? I can see why employers would be loath to allow employees to you know, publicly, ethnically, religiously identify. Okay, Apple store of Irvine. And you have a terrorist over here that's supporting well, fucking Palestine. Right okay. okay, wearing, that's terrible. Just because you're wearing a something supporting Palestine in, in no way, shape, or form means that you're a terrorist. Okay. You enjoy? Hi, yes, what is the manager, please? I'm one of the managers. So why she's wearing this flag? What was that? Why she's wearing the, this flag? Yeah. You know what is, you know, you know what is advising? Yeah, so it's inviting behaving babies. You know what they did? You know what they did? These guys? Why? Why? We don't need you to go ahead and harass me. But why? I'm not harassing nobody. Yeah, yeah. So no, I'm not. Why you say that? Why you say that? So how can we help you outside? This is my ID. Are you picking okay. And pick up. And this is my credit card. And I'm asking you very gently, why did you let her wear this flag? Is she, is she supporting Hamas? No, no. She's not supporting Hamas. So why is she putting this flag? Because okay, wearing a Palestinian flag does not mean you support Hamas. I mean, I, I can't. I, I would never have made this kind of confrontation, and I, I would not hold anything against anyone for wearing a Palestinian flag. Hamas control this place. No. No, I want to no, say, I want to like, see why. Looks like we're because these guys right. fucking behaved our babies. Okay, It's, it's never out. happened, so you fucking moron. Right. Yeah. Right. If you say this has never happened, huh? Why you say it's never happened? Did you see it? It's my family. You piece of shit. So we can go ahead and ask you to... Okay, my sympathy there is 100% on the side of the Apple employees. I'm... You know, embarrassed that uh, they were abused like that.
50 years, has by no means been definitive and, frankly, not necessarily impressive. That's one aspect of this. The other is that the more that Israel has become economically successful, the more we've come to resemble a consumerist Western society, the more the perception has grown that we're soft. And many Israelis felt that way as well. The head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, gave a famous speech, I don't know, 15 years ago, where he compared Israel to a spider web. And he said that just as a spider web appears to be impenetrable from the outside, and then when you swipe it, it disintegrates, that's Israel. And the Ayatollah Khamenei famously said, I think it was in 2015 or 16, that Israel has 25 years until its destruction. There are doomsday clocks on street corners in Iranian cities that are marking time to the demise of Israel. And my sense is that Hamas expected another round of fighting, maybe more intense than the last 15 years. But I think that so back to Palestine supporters, my understanding is that everyone has a hero system. Right? Some people's hero system is articulated by Roman Catholicism. Other people's hero system is around free Palestine. Other people's hero system is primarily about uh, securing the Jewish state. So I certainly you know, identify more with Zionists and uh, traditional Jews and, and that hero system, but you know, I... I I would not go around, you know, berating people for having a different hero system. I would not go around berating people, you know, embracing Hamas because I simply expect people to side with their team. That, that, you know, I would expect is the human default. They believed we would be deterred for two reasons. First of all, the fact that they now have Israeli hostages. This is an unprecedented situation. They're holding 240 plus hostages. And the second is I... So I had you know, several uh, observers of Orthodox Jewish life in Los Angeles tell me that they, they thought that probably half of Orthodox Jews in Los Angeles regard Baruch Goldstein as a hero. Baruch Goldstein went into a mosque and just opened fire and killed you know, several dozen uh, Muslims who simply came to a mosque to, to pray. So I do not regard Baruch Goldstein as a hero. But there are probably a lot of Orthodox Jews that I'm on very friendly terms with. I probably you know, dined at their home. I would not try to argue. I don't try to argue people out of their various beliefs. But yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of Orthodox Jews in my life who regard Baruch Goldstein as a hero. I do not regard Baruch Goldstein as a hero. I, I, I find it uh, disturbing that someone would regard Baruch Goldstein as a hero. But I, I recognize that you know, people are basically tribal think that they were depending on world opinion, that at some point, world opinion will conclude that this has gone too far and Israel is out of control and the price is too high and innocent Palestinians are paying a price for what Hamas did. All the scenarios that are playing out now. You said a few minutes ago that Israel has not won a war outright since the 70s because it's not been willing to go all the way. What does it mean to go all the way? Well, I think that we're seeing that in Gaza now. So going all the way means uh, continuing this war with all of the horrific consequences and even endangering large numbers of Israeli civilians. Now, 
how that's actually going to play out. Will Israelis have the stomach for staring down Hamas over the hostages? I don't know. I really don't know. So I've had two thoughts through a lot of this. One is that the Israeli determination to destroy Hamas is almost the basic function of a state right now, that there's no state in the world that would absorb the kind of attack Hamas conducted and not do everything in its power to rip it out root and branch. And also that sometimes where I would expect to hear a description of how Israel is going to do the thing that it is promising to do at acceptable cost, and I am somebody who believes there are unacceptable costs that end up backfiring against the very things you're trying to preserve, I've not heard much. And, and I think one of the things that has unnerved me more is that the truth is, and I don't think this is all that unusual, even within Israel, I don't have very much faith in the Israeli government. I mean, Netanyahu has been a disaster. But also, the Israeli defense forces were able to see a huge amount of open-air training and what they thought were war games, and there was intelligence coming up through their, through their people, and still couldn't see what was about to happen. And so then the, the idea that they have the level of intelligence needed to know if the 7,000 targets they bombed are the right targets, or when they invade Gaza, which houses to go into. That's been a real question for me, that it seems that Hamas might want to lure Israel into this. And it's not 100% clear that Israel knows what it is in, that, that right now, just having Netanyahu or the IDF say, trust us, we have the, the knowledge here, the intelligence, a sense of kind of Palestinian informers and psychology needed to conduct this such that we achieve our goals beyond just showing that we are willing to go to all-out war. That's been a, a point of real concern. And I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, well, first I would just uh, quibble with you about one point you said you don't have a whole lot of faith in Netanyahu. Uh, I have less than zero faith in Netanyahu. I think he is a uh, an unqualified historic disaster for Israel, and especially over the last year. The fact that he's technically the prime minister at this moment, and I say technically because for a vast number of Israelis, he has no authority anymore. He has no moral legitimacy. What does give me some confidence is that we have um, Benny Gantz, the, the head of one of the opposition parties, and a former IDF chief of staff now sitting in government together with his party. And um, there are any number of serious military people who've joined the government with Benny Gantz. And Benny Gantz is also running in the polls as far and away the most popular choice for next prime minister. And in all likelihood, he will be the next prime minister. In terms of the army, you know, it's, it's hard to know what's worse. If you have the intelligence and you fundamentally misread it, or you don't have the intelligence. In this case, the army did have intelligence, and they misread it. They misread it because of a doctrine which Netanyahu promoted all these years, and the army adopted. The army is certainly not free of blame here. And the doctrine was that Hamas is too weak to attack us. I feel... And the polls show that this is true for a strong majority of Israelis, that the people running the army are still trustworthy. Look, when, when this war ends, they will all have to resign, along with the government. This generation of leaders, both politically and militarily, are finished. But I believe that they are able to fight this war in the same way that the IDF command 
1973 was able to very effectively fight the Yom Kippur War, even though they had failed to anticipate it. And so I have trust in the current leadership. I think it's a tragedy that we're going to lose them because they, as I say, every one of them is going to have to resign. We're going to see a total turnover of generations, certainly militarily and hopefully politically. But I do believe that they're capable of reading the map now and Okay, maybe uh, maybe the IDF uh, not as incompetent as they looked. I right, having to sell your daughter. The white-bearded to make man who claims he's 55 years old comes to collect her. Afghans oh. selling their daughters to survive. He's bought parwana for 200,000 Afghanis, just over 2,000 US dollars. Covered up, Pawana whimpers as her mother holds her. This is your bride. Please take care of her, says Pawana's father. Of course I will take care of her, replies the man. His large hands grab her small frame. Pawana tries to pull away. As he carries her only bag of belongings... She again resists, digging her heels into the dirt. But it's futile. The fate of this small, helpless child has been sealed. Nine-year-old Litan and four-year-old Zeton for a thousand US dollars each. Do you know why they're selling you? The journalist asked Zeton. Because we are a poor family and don't have any food to eat, she says. Are you scared, he asks. Yes, I am. Another family in Gore province borrowed money from their 70-year-old neighbour. Now he's demanding it back, but they have nothing to give, except their 10-year-old daughter, Magul. My daughter doesn't want to go and is crying all the time. I am so ashamed, he says. Terrified, she threatens to take her life. If they push me to marry the old man, I will kill myself. I don't want to leave my parents. Days later, she discovers the sale has been finalised. Another Afghan child sold into a life of misery. Wow. Okay, that's it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.